morning, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when almost anything, certainly on this show, can happen. Well, tonight's show, and I'm very sorry that everything got postponed last weekend, but uh, those headaches are just... I I hate talking about symptoms, but they're incredibly debilitating. Before you all want to send me all these mainstream drugs, please don't. I mean, look at the side effects, and and I don't care what they say about the percentage. I'll be the unlucky one that winds up sounding absolutely drunk or stoned on the air. And we've been down that road, so uh, Don is laughing. Okay, um, tonight is going to be pretty amazing. Um, in fact, in a weird kind of way, remember I've said often, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but with Kintia around, I don't want to do it totally tongue-in-cheek, uh, that God is really our executive producer, because the fact that this show got delayed a week from last Saturday means that tonight I can tell you some more amazing stuff about the Didymos dimorphos impact than I could have possibly told you a week ago. And if we had delayed this until next Saturday, which is actually going to be part two of tonight's show, which will include, by the way, a update on the moon. Uh, There's interesting stuff going on with Artemis and CubeSat and Denuri, and I'll bring you all up to date momentarily on that. Um, We will know a lot more about Didymos, maybe – let me rephrase that. We may know a lot more about Didymos. Because frankly, I'm going to bet dollars to Navy beans that what we're going to have for you tonight in the next three hours is such stunning, checkable, scientific information that is frankly off the edge of the paper and in some other dimension that when NASA does its update, which they're going to do on Tuesday, they're holding a Tuesday um, afternoon press conference for DART, and they're going to trot out some new data. I guarantee you the data that they will present will come nowhere near the data we're going to present tonight and the confirmations of some of it that we will have given another week, another seven days. So without further ado, let me swing right into it tonight. Uh, What you want to do to kind of follow along for you who are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's uh, URL, our main homepage. Click on tonight's banner. Uh, it, there's a typo there. It says October 1st. It's really October 8th. Kintia didn't get a chance to change it. Click on that banner. Did NASA deliberately, accidentally, totally obliterate its target asteroid? Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Right under there where it says uh, past links to items, click on my name. That will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. And we're going to start tonight with an update on Artemis. As you know, because of Hurricane Ian, they rolled a few days before the hurricane made landfall. The entire Artemis SLS stack, the several miles from the launch pad 39B, back to the vehicle assembly building, uh, and they tucked it safely inside, closed the doors, and it weathered the storm perfectly fine. They're now going through checks 
They've had to replace some batteries. There's an onboard termination system, which is basically for range safety. The uh, Space uh, Force demanded that they kind of do that. And there's some uh, recharging of batteries in the CubeSats. The Artemis booster is going to take something like 10 or 13. I kind of lost track. It's somewhere in that neighborhood. CubeSats, piggybacking, uh, hitchhiking, uh, en route to the moon. And they'll be dropped off in various orbits, including one, which is a solar sail in a CubeSat, which is going to navigate its way to an asteroid. Nice for kind of a segue to tonight's program. Anyway, um, that's all kind of in preparation for them setting a new launch date. It's not going to be in October. It's going to be sometime probably around the middle of November. And as the church lady would have said on a Saturday Night Live, isn't that special? Because guess what's happening in the middle of November? The capstone unmanned mission is getting to the moon, putting itself into orbit, to test the gateway uh, rectilinear halo orbit. And with Artemis arriving just a, a few days uh, before or after, depending upon which launch window they, they choose, those two NASA missions will get to the moon essentially simultaneously with cameras, I mean literally dozens of cameras, which once and for all can confirm our model that the moon is filled with ancient, ancient, artificial ruins, maybe built by aliens, maybe built by our great, 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 great grandmothers. But both of those missions are now going to arrive in sync. And if push comes to shove and I was woken up and given sodium pentothal at three o'clock in the morning, uh, I would tell whoever was doing the interrogation that I think that the Artemis mission has been deliberately delayed so these two missions, the unmanned capstone and the manned uh, potential, because it's going to be unmanned on its first test flight, Artemis mission, carrying something like 11 or 12 cameras of incredible fidelity and range and recordability and downlinking potential and all of that, they're all going to arrive at the moon in orbit simultaneously, and they may blow the doors off of the cover-up of the last 50-plus years of what's really waiting for us on the moon. So if you look at item number two, that's an update on Capstone. Remember, Capstone, after its mid-course, to keep it on track for its uh, November 13th arrival, suffered some kind of weird upset right after the successful mid-course back around September 8th. It's taken them a month to come to grips with how to stop the tumble and the spin. And they did it literally on Friday. I think they did it yesterday. And so now Capstone is in a partially uh, recovered attitude and uh, mission profile. They will complete the rest of the uh, recovery later, sometime in the next uh, few days, I would imagine. And then they will be back on track to get to the moon, as I said, November 13th. Just when Artemis is arriving. Isn't that special, as Church Lady would say? Item number three, the South Korean Denuri unmanned mission. Remember, Denuri is kind of a fusion of two Korean words, which means enjoy moon. Is that more Emily Dickinson? 
Because believe me, if somebody finds ancient lunar ruins on the moon, an awful lot of people are going to enjoy moon. I mean, really. In fact, it will probably, and we're going to get to this momentarily, it will probably change the world for the better. And I will go through that momentarily, how that actually hangs together. The Denuri Ballistic Transfer, or remember, this is one of those slow boats to China where you launch and instead of taking just three days like Apollo did to get to the moon, it takes like three or four months. That's because they discovered through these incredible supercomputers that have come online at the space agencies, both in the U.S. and around the world, that there are certain orbits where if you just launch just above escape velocity, which remember is around 25,000 miles per hour, what you wind up doing is drifting toward the moon in extraordinarily elongated orbits that literally take months for you to arrive. But it really, 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 can I add a couple more reallys? Saves fuel. So it's an ultra-cheap way to send even little CubeSat spacecraft, which can be launched by talented and funded amateurs. Hint, hint. We're going to be talking a lot about amateurs and their uh, role in saving science later on in the morning. Literally, amateurs, if they get together and they get the right people and they get the right funding, and it's about the like a Mercedes maybe, they can launch their own spacecraft to the moon and go into orbit, which, of course, is what the CubeSat mission is basically demonstrating. Um, Denuri is a much bigger spacecraft. I mean, it's funded by a government, the government of South Korea. It's got a NASA payload on board, uh, which is really special. It weighs 33 ritual pounds. It is called ShadowCam. It's run by Mr. Coverup himself, Michael Malin, the chief NASA scientist who has been hiding stuff on uh, Mars for decades and decades with various missions. The guy who many years ago had some really bad things to say about my friend Arthur C. Clarke, which of course put him beyond the pale for me forever. But he is the chief cover-up guy at NASA who's been hiding all the good stuff on Mars for decades and is in charge of the shadow cam, the 33-pound shadow cam, going to the moon into lunar orbit on Denuri, the Enjoy Moon South Korean spacecraft, and the shadow cam is supposed to take pictures of the permanently shadowed craters at the lunar south pole so that the Artemis third mission, mission number three, which we crewed with men and women, can safely land near the south pole of the moon and begin setting up a permanent lunar base for the United States of America. And as I've said in some previous shows, uh, this really is a kind of a cover story because if my data, which came from the lacrosse mission, which I published a couple weeks ago here on the other side of midnight, if that data is correct and we've got multiple images in color, the moon is covered by this extraordinary glass dome which now is in incredibly bad shape because it's so, so ancient and meteor battered, but it's thicker over the poles, particularly over certain parts of the poles because of geometry, how it uh, got eroded by micrometeorites over literally millions of years. And so I firmly believe that the shadow cam, again, helmed by Mike Malin, 
its real job is not to look down into the craters and with faint scattered sunlight from the high walls around these craters, which are still seeing sunlight, map the floor so you can find out where it's safe to land. I think basically because it's going to be something like six to 800 times more sensitive, a CCD camera system, 800 times more sensitive than the most sophisticated, sensitive digital imaging systems we've ever sent to the moon, which was on the U.S. mission called uh, uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. If that's true, then the real job of shadow cam is not to detect what's in the shadows in those craters. It's to find out where the domes have holes so that the Artemis mission can be safely landed and not blow itself to pieces by trying to land like the Indians did by crashing down through various layers of the ancient, ancient dome. And of course, they're not going to tell us any of this stuff. So we have to figure it out independently and publish independently and basically catch them in the Act, which takes us to item number four. For the first time in my lifetime since 1962, since October of 1962, you know there's those moments where you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when certain historical things were taking place, like where you were when Kennedy was assassinated. Well, I also remember vividly where I was when the Cuban Missile Crisis was announced by then-President John Kennedy in a White House uh, Oval Office speech October afternoon. And we're coming up on exactly 60 years, I think it's next weekend, I think it's the 16th, to harking back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And lo and behold, the current President of the United States, President Joseph Biden, at a fundraiser in New York the other night, uh, allowing himself to be put on the record. Uh, they didn't allow filming or, or audio taping, but he did allow reporters to be present at the speech, and he allowed them to record, like reporters used to do, in a notebook what he said to take it down. He basically compared the current situation vis-a-vis -vis Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine to the highest risk of a nuclear Armageddon in the last 60 years Harking back, of course, to the very upsetting and unsettling Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 1962. And he went into some detail as to how even a small use of nuclear weapons by Putin, a tactical nuke on some battlefield in Ukraine, could escalate instantly to an all-out nuclear war, i.e. the Armageddon part. And so there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. And uh, the, you know, Putin has, has basically threatened nuclear Armageddon from the get-go. From the moment that uh, uh, the war opened in Ukraine, he's been giving speeches threatening that any, any uh, acts against uh, uh, Russia will be met as an existential threat, and they will be responded to by all weapons and means necessary, which of course includes in the lexicon nuclear weapons in his inventory. So that's kind of where we are tonight. We've got unmanned spacecraft heading to the moon. We've had NASA send a spacecraft over a 10-month journey that was supposed to nudge an asteroid, and it looks like they did a lot more than just nudge it, which of course is the substance of the next three hours. And then in Ukraine, we have an all-out war between uh, Ukraine itself 
and the former Soviet Union, Russia, and the Russians are not faring well. Uh, there's been a major escalation in the form of a bridge to Crimea, which I think uh, one of our guests is going to talk about this morning. So we're literally poised on the edge. And of course, my question is, what can possibly intervene to change this extraordinarily negative trend curve of current history? In fact, I have uh, two people, one who's going to be on the air tonight and one who is not, but he emailed me separately. And he really thinks that this October or November is the most uh, dangerous time for what uh, Biden has uh, warned about the other night. And he's got a whole bunch of, you know, one of his sources, which turns out to be Ukrainian, um, uh, is basically reporting from on the ground. And there is very, very uh, uh, deep apprehension in Ukraine because of Putin being backed into a corner and having no way out. Well, let me tell you what one way out for Vladimir Putin could be, which would turn him into one of history's most vilified villains, into a potential hero. All he has to do is unveil all the records of the Soviet Union that we are not alone, including artifacts, including UFOs showing up over missile sites and turning off missiles in the old Soviet Union, like the same you know guys showed up over U.S. Uh, missile silos in Montana and South Dakota and did the same thing here. If he was to change the conversation, in other words, if he was to upgrade the Reagan-Gorbachev conversation, where Reagan and Gorbachev agreed at that summit back in the 80s, that if there really were um, villainous ETs who were not, you know, who were basically did not have our best interests at heart, um, both the U.S. and the USSR back then would join together to confront the potential combined. That's all Putin has to do. Unveil the data that he's got, turn from villain to hero, stop the war in Ukraine, focus his attention upstairs toward the breakaways, who I firmly believe are trying to manipulate both sides in this Ukrainian insanity into doing something really dumb and stupid and thereby removing the larger galactic problem of Homo sapiens from the solar system. And that's a very long discussion with lots of uh, debatable points, which we will have in depth at another time, because in the midst of this backdrop, where all kinds of world-changing events are going on, last week on the 26th of September, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration impacted a asteroid, a small uh, object roughly 500 feet across, which orbits a bigger object roughly uh, half a mile across, and did something so extraordinary that observers all over the world, uh, amateurs, professionals, people in NASA, people outside NASA, everybody who has been following this mission is still trying to figure out what in fact happened. So that's item number six. If you go in that, that uh, uh, basically will tell you everything you need to know about uh, uh, this first test of a so-called planetary defense system. Because the model here is that, well, we'll, we'll get to the model momentarily, okay? Now, um, if that's item number six. Item number seven, 
Um, NASA next week, next Tuesday, on the 11th, are going to hold their first major post-mission press conference. They held one, you know, like a couple of hours after impact and everybody's clapping everybody else in the back and rah, rah and cheer and oh, it seems to have worked. And I mean, they were really kind of concerned they would even hit the damn thing because it's so tiny after a looping journey uh, of several tens of millions of hundreds of millions of miles that wound up hitting their target seven million miles away, almost dead center. So the test of the technology to do this seemed to be confirmed. In other words, if we're ever threatened by a potential impact on Earth from some kind of asteroid or comet heading our way, one of the means of deflecting it, of making an impact trajectory into a missed trajectory, is to catch it early, nudge it if you can, and thereby causing its orbit to diverge, because it doesn't take much to have an, an object crossing Earth's orbit when Earth is at that point to miss. It only has to miss by 8,000 miles, bingo, the width of the Earth, and you don't get a, a, an impact, you get a near miss. So if you do that several years ahead of time, and these orbits are such long looping orbits that they can take years to go around the sun once, I think Didymos, which was the target, system takes about two years to go around because it's what's called an Amor asteroid, which is an asteroid which comes closer to the sun just outside the Earth's orbit, something like a, you know, a few million miles. So if you catch it early and you can nudge it by hitting it with something, think of it as inflammatory billiards, then by nudging it, even if you only change the velocity by a few millimeters per second over years, that adds up, and ultimately, the object will wind up missing the Earth, which is the intent of the experiment to begin with. Well, when they did this, um, and item number 7A is the update on what they think they accomplished, we're looking for several things. <clears throat> One is, did they successfully change the orbit of, of, of Dimorphos, which is the little guy, the 500-foot wide guy, orbiting uh, Didymus, which is the bigger half-mile-wide guy. And we don't know yet. At least we might find out during this press conference, because I've got a network of amateur astronomers that I was able to kind of put together in the last couple of weeks, and they've been taking regular data and sending it to me and collating it among themselves. And when I last looked at their data, they can find no trace of the regular 11-hour, 55-minute orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos. Remember, Didymos is the big guy, Dimorphos is the little guy. And those are both Greek names, and when Ron comes on, we will uh, have fun discussing their origins. Instead, if you look at item 7B, this is a um, um, collision video taken by the Atlas Project, which is a NASA-run asteroid avoidance uh, uh, surveillance network uh, based in Hawaii. It's got telescopes in South America. It's got telescopes in South Africa. And the ones in Hawaii recorded this video. I mean, look at that. It's looped. It's a GIF. But you can see that when uh, the DART spacecraft, which stands for Double uh, Asteroid Redirection Test, when it slammed at 4.1 miles per second into Dimorphos, look what happened in the video 
at 7B. I mean, that was not supposed to happen. That's huge. That's enormous. I mean, it dwarfs any impacts. We've had two previous tests on a much smaller scale in the years prior to this. Nobody expected that. It's like, who ordered that? Something really major, something really unexpected, something completely unmodeled happened, and that was the result. Anyway, my guys, my network of amateurs, member citizen scientists, some of whom are located in South America, some of whom are located in the uh, Western United States, some of whom are located halfway around the world, they've all been looking and sending to my coordinator friend, um, who's an amateur astronomer who's done this kind of work professionally for years, sent him the data. He's commonly reduced it, meaning he's kind of analyzed and presented in a common format all these amateur astronomers, uh, imaging and videos and light curves and photometer readings, none of these people have been able to find a trace of the orbit of Dimorphos. It seems to have disappeared, which is, of course, what I, the reason I, you know, named tonight show what it is, because it looks like NASA destroyed the damn thing. The question before the House is, did they do it deliberately? Did they know it was going to happen? Or did they do it accidentally? And um, that will be part of our discussion later on this evening. So item number 7C, this is an uh, image taken by an Earth-based observatory showing uh, Didymos, which is still there and still bright enough to see, um, in a very interesting light because it appears that the impact turned an asteroid into a comet. It had developed when this photo was taken, which is a few hours after the impact by this uh, major Earth-based telescope. I forget which one. Um, it, it developed a tail. And the tail is here is to be pointing away from the sun because it's being blown away by the radiation pressure of sunlight on the little teeny tiny micron-sized particles called dust particles, which make up these uh, tails in space. There's two kinds of tails in space. One is an ion tail, which is from gases evaporating from comets, and the other is a dust tail. And comets usually have two. They have an ion tail and a dust tail. Um, there only appears to be a dust tail extending out behind uh, Didymos, because you can't obviously see the two little guys orbiting each other at this scale. You just see a little point of light which is around 15th magnitude, which is really, 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 really dim. You know, sixth magnitude is human eye visibility limits in a dark desert. So it takes a pretty big telescope to see this stuff and record CCD images, and they found that it had developed a tail. Well, there is an inset in the bottom right of item 7C, and you'll see that there's also this very peculiar geometry around the entire Didymos system. We'll get to that in, in, a, in a minute. We've only got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour, and then we'll bring on our guest of the morning. Item number 7D, these are Webble, Webble, Web and Hubble, yes, Mrs. Mercatroyd, Web and Hubble images captured literally minutes after the impact. Hubble's on the left, Web is on the right, and between the diffraction spikes, which are uh, basically off the uh, components of the telescope, you can see in both the Hubble visible imagery and in the Webb infrared imagery, 
that all hell broke loose and you have these enormous jets, uh, you know, basically ejected at almost two miles per second into space. That's what that video shows up above. If you use the actual measurement, the eject is coming off at almost two miles per second. Well, um, I'll tell you what, that's probably enough for for this uh, segment. And I'm going to recommend we take a break and that everybody kind of uh, pause, take a deep breath. When we come back, I'm going to introduce my guests of the morning, and we're going to have the most extraordinary freeform discussion about what NASA really did in the Udemo system, because I think they did much, much more than just inadvertently, or maybe deliberately, blow away an asteroid. And that will provide the bulk of our conversation on the other side of midnight on this Saturday, October 8th, 2022. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, before we get to my guests, I want to do one more little thing here, which is to take you back to Radio with Pictures and look at item number eight. This is the diagram, which I borrowed or stole from someone. I can't remember who. I think it's a Japanese diagram. They do really interesting diagrams. kind of shows you the geometry of what we're going to talk about tonight, so you might want to refer to number eight periodically uh, as the conversation ensues. It basically shows you the geometry of the central object, the half-mile-wide Didymos uh, asteroid, orbited every 11 hours and 55 minutes before uh, impact by the Dimorphos satellite, the little moon, which was a little over 500 feet across. And there you can see the DART spacecraft, 1,200 pounds, 
uh, moving toward the target on the facing side of Dimorphos. Dimorphos orbits in the direction counterclockwise, uh, the uh, blue arrow. The dark spacecraft is approaching uh, in the direction of the yellow arrow. And so there was a combined collision of, of uh, dart with Dimorphos coming basically like a head-on collision on a freeway, except that something like 4.1 miles per second, that's over 14,000 miles per hour. The energy transferred, which NASA never published, they never actually published uh, uh, the, the numbers for what this was gonna do. They always said, oh, it's just gonna create this kind of little crater on uh, Dimorphos, and then we'll go back in a couple of years with a European mission called HERA, uh, and take close-up pictures, go into orbit, kind of survey the system, see what we did, We'll measure the light curve as seen from Earth and see if we slow Dimorphos down. And of course, when you slow an orbiting object down, its orbital period speeds up. Remember, lower orbits move faster than higher orbits. These are uh, Kepler's laws. And that's why a low spacecraft orbiting the Earth orbits around every 90 minutes. Uh, objects at 22,000 plus miles take 24 hours to go around because they're 22,000 miles up in space compared to just a couple of hundred for low Earth orbit. So higher orbits are slower, lower orbits are faster, and the idea was with the impact to transfer energy from the impacting dart, from the kinetic energy, simply of, of the movement of this, you know, 1,200 pound spacecraft slamming into Dimorphos at over four miles per second. And I've calculated that the equivalent energy in terms of TNT, would be if you had basically placed a, uh, uh, a bomb inside, not on the surface, but inside Dimorphos and set it off equivalent to between 4,000 and 6,000 pounds of TNT. There's some error in those numbers because some of the numbers they published are not exactly accurate. And so there's a kind of a range. Now I know, cause I went and looked this stuff up, a 4,000 pound bomb, um, you know, unloaded on Baghdad or London during the war or whatever, basically can obliterate a city block. Uh, Dimorphos was roughly the size of a city block. And what was really bizarre, and that tells me why NASA did not publish any of these numbers beforehand, all they said was that the impact might change the period of Dimorphos uh, by about 10 minutes. So instead of being 11 hours, 55 minutes, it might be down to 10 hours and 45 minutes, um, which would indicate a very efficient transfer of energy, a deflection of the asteroid, and a confirmation of the redirection model, that this could be part of the arsenal we would use if we ever found and calculated that there was an asteroid heading toward the Earth, and you would use kinetic energy of impact to basically try to divert it. That was the idea. That was how this was sold. Well, one of the really weird things is uh, there are various websites that uh, are out there like unmannedspaceflight.com and nasaspaceflight.com and many others. And they have participants who actually are from inside NASA. Some of them use their real names. Some of them use uh, you know, pseudonyms. But they really are kind of an inside view of what's going on physically, in terms of calculations, the physics of 
what the inside NASA view is when these people post on these various boards. And one of them did an interesting calculation. Of course, they didn't do it before the impact, but when they saw what happened, and that's item numbers nine, I mean, look at that extraordinary um, uh, outflux of material. Look at the geometry of, of eight, and then look at the geometry of nine. For some reason, the imagery coming down from DART from the so-called Draco telescopic camera was upside down and backwards. So what I've done is I rearranged the geometry. So the impact debris coming off is identical to the geometric impact that you see in number eight. So number nine is from this little Lycia cube, uh, cube set that the Italians built for NASA and put on board like a hitchhiker. And it was dumped off like 15 days ahead of the uh, impact. And so you see it there in item number eight, that's that little uh, cube set with the little wings called uh, Lycia cube, L-I-C-I-A cube. The photograph in nine, the image, is from that dropped off satellite, which was about 30 miles away when the impact occurred. Now, 30 miles, they thought would be a good safe standoff distance. In fact, the debris from this incredible event may have reached as far as uh, Leecher Cube. We don't quite know that yet. Uh, we may find out uh, on Tuesday when NASA holds this press conference at 2 o'clock um, Eastern time in the afternoon on Tuesday afternoon. October 11th. Mark it on your calendars. There's links there in that uh, item number. What is the item num number? It's item number um, three. I'm sorry. Sorry. Two. Item. No, I'm sorry. I'm really bollocking this up. It's item number 7A. That's where you will find. Um, is it 7A? No, it's item number. Uh, item number six. I'm sorry, item number six. That will be an update from NASA on the uh, um, impact that happened two weeks ago. Uh, I had these in a different order and we rearranged them, so that's the reason why I'm sounding a little befuddled tonight. Don't mind me. I'm just here to, you know, run the board. Anyway, so item number nine, that extraordinary set of, of uh, ejecta in all directions also appeared to have some very interesting geometry. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is what did NASA intend to do? What did they actually wind up doing? And I'll save the rest of my slides for uh, later in the evening as the uh, conversation progresses. I might want to call your attention to 10 and 11. These are now close-ups of the two spacecraft, not to scale. That's item number 12. Uh, look at item number 10. That's uh, Didymos half a mile across, looking very geometric. In fact, looking like a diamond, literally. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Then you've got a close-up of Dimorphos, the satellite, not to scale, because if it was to scale, you wouldn't see much. And you can see there's all kinds of interesting rubble across its surface, including very geometric rubble. And we'll get into conversations on that. Item number 12, some years ago, NASA flew by an asteroid, uh, I'm sorry, the Europeans flew by an asteroid en route to a cometary uh, rendezvous, and the asteroid was called Steins, and that's the uh, best shot that uh, we have of Steins, which was about four miles uh, across of the equatorial region, and that's Didymos by 
by comparison, size to the same scale. Didymos is half a mile. Stein's was about four miles. You can see, however, that both have this very peculiar diamond-shaped geometry. So what I want to do now is I want to introduce our guests of the evening because they're going to be taking the brunt of this conversation because they have been doing some really interesting um, uh, research work in the last couple of weeks, and they've got remarkably interesting results. So let's start with Andrew. Uh, Andrew is a commercial uh, illustrator. He does storyboards. He does uh, movies. He does commercials. He basically lays out plot lines and scripts for producers and actors and people who want to fund movies and high-end commercials. He's done Super Bowls and he's done major feature films and all that. What he's been doing in the last two weeks at my request is sketching, sketching um, Didymos and Dimorphos. And I see that we have a uh, interesting bunch of, of sketches here, uh, which which I don't. Do we have the right sketches? Uh, maybe I need to refresh. Okay, so let me introduce. Uh, yes, we do. Yes, sorry, just my not refreshing. Okay, so without further ado, let me start the evening off with Andrew. Andrew Curry, come on down. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on again. Well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, what can I say? Richard, these look like spaceships to me. I'm going to just come out and say it, and then we'll go in and, and look at my posters. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about many times on this show is we make these big declarations, these big speculative statements. And, you know, one of the ways to um, verify at least some of our speculation is – finding images from different angles and seeing if, you know, similar patterns are happening. And this is the kind of thing that when you asked me to do this little project about looking at these two uh, objects, I call them objects, I call them artificial. Uh, I tried to look at it from different, you know, different perspectives, the shots that we're getting either from the, um, the Italian cube set or even from the DART mission itself. And over and over again, Richard, it's for me reconfirming that this stuff is artificial. There's there's symmetry, there's high level of geometry, there's a lot of straight lines and sharp corners. I mean, I was driving by a, a big boulder the other just the other day, and I'm looking at there's a little <laughs> roughness in the bottom of it. No, I'm serious. I'm looking. Yeah, at I, I, I do the same thing. I keep looking at natural things, and I say, how would I know if I saw that on a satellite image that it wasn't natural or artificial? Yeah, and it brings me to my poster, number one. So if we go to the other side of midnight.com and go to the show page banner and tap on that, and then you come to um, like the guest page and you go fast links to items. So mine is under Andrew. And if you go to my first item, uh, it's called Didymos One. And it's, uh, you know, it's, I guess, moments after the explosion. And this is, this would be the Italian cube set, right? Yeah, the Lycia cube, mm -hmm. uh, one of the shots. And you asked me originally, take a look at take a look at Dimorphos and the you know the symmetry. But I, the first thing that caught my eye, Richard, was Didymos, <laughs> was this um, extraordinary part 
underneath. Oh, well, I'm calling it underneath. We don't know that. And there's all these uh, right angles. Well, it's on, it's on the side facing away from Dimorphos because right. these two little yeah. objects obviously orbiting each other are in tidal lock. In other words, they both rotate. Actually, I, I belay that. I, I don't mean that at all. Didymos used to rotate in about two hours and 20 minutes, okay, once around. Dimorphos is tidally locked with Didymos, and it rotated every 11 hours and 55 minutes because you can see in the literal egg shape that it's, it's tidally uh, distorted by the gravity, the teeny tiny gravity of Didymos. I mean, these things are not super giants. They're very, very low gravity. But given enough time, even low gravity will warp things to be kind of in conformance. So Didymos is the smaller half-mile object spinning like crazy um, compared to other asteroids. And, uh, I mean, two hours. Um, it turns out that if it spun just a little bit faster in the equations that NASA developed, it would fly apart from centrifugal force. So it's literally rotating as fast as it could rotate, and if it was nudged to be just a little faster, it would it would basically come apart like a flywheel uh, in some foundry spinning too fast. Well, as I said, uh, this first image, and I know it's really bleached out, like it's just not a – I don't know why we – why is the shot so bleached out, Richard? I was just wondering about that. Is it just – Well, what they did is because they didn't have very good photometrics. They had to okay. they had to arrange in the computer on the CubeSat for the camera to take a range of images, you know, bang, 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 with a yeah. range of exposures so they okay. would catch – because they imagined that they would have just a little tiny ejecta plume and they wanted to catch it against dark space yeah okay. they never imagined that this holy hell would break loose yeah well on this first shot i just as i said i saw immediately the symmetry on on the larger body didymos right we're getting i'm, I'm mm -hmm. getting this flipping back and forth and i don't know it means didymos means twin yeah yeah and to me this I mean, look at that. Just you don't even look at my drawing. I mean, I brought out some detail, but I think the photograph is better than even my rendering. But I just wanted to punch it up a little more. I, I you know, that's one example. I mean, I'm seeing just repeating shapes. And if we bounce out of that, oh no, sorry, let's not do that yet. Let's go to the image at the bottom. I did a little. I found a little um, graphic, kind of like you with the Japanese one, mm -hmm. about the about the size of these things. And um, so Dimorphos is 163 meters. Um, I guess as big as the. Um, it's it's almost three. 600 feet. It's 560 feet, I think, is the yeah. actual number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sort of as big as the, I guess, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Yep. And which is 483 is, feet. So it's actually slightly bigger. The like Great Pyramid, and that's not what the yeah. Great Pyramid looks like. But okay, no, I, <laughs> I was thinking that too. Somebody is really screwing up there. It's a very slender pyramid. If nobody's maybe they were Russians, because those are Russian-style <laughs> pyramids. Yes. Yeah, maybe. And then Didymos, of course, is you know much larger, 780 meters, uh, which is is that the the tower from uh, Dubai? Yes. I think it, yeah, that's the world's tallest thing. building in Dubai. Yeah whose TV antenna on the top is actually bigger than Didymos. Not by much, yeah. but by a little. Yeah. And so I just thought I would put that in there as a size comparison. I mean, you did – I think you did a very similar thing. But that's just a little trivia. And I, I actually 
later I'm, I'm working on a little something and I, I'll, when the other guests come on, I'm going to try to finish it. And I promised Keith, I wouldn't add anything, but I want to, cause I have a little personal note at the end. I wouldn't mind adding in. Oh, cool. So I'll tease the audience easy audience with that. So let's bounce out of that, go to my number two poster. This one I just called Didymos 2. And this is sort of, I think, kind of like an opposite angle, Richard. I mean, it looks like it's just a flip side of it from the... Um, the no, 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 no. We're all, we only saw the one side. When you see different arrangements, it's because they kept flipping the images upside down and mirroring them left oh, and right. Okay. And I don't know whether that's just accidental or deliberate to confuse right. people who don't follow yeah. this closely. But no, we've seen none of the other side. They were supposed to fly past with a little CubeSat and photograph Didymos and Dimorphos and the ejecta from the opposite geometry, 180 degrees. Okay. They may show us some of that on Tuesday, and they may not. Okay. All right. Well, again, in this image, I, I'm seeing – I mean, again, it's very, very fuzzy. I get it. And again, I think even my drawing is not even as strong as, as, as the images that are here. But it eerily reminded me of the Ares 1B lunar carrier in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now, I'm not suggesting that's right, what it is. Right. At all. <clears throat> but just this kind of idea of this transport and the shape. I mean, I know the shape is more of a diamond shape rather than the lunar carrier, which is more of like a. Circle, well, what but... they did is they overexposed this so. Um, you could be seeing layers above the diamond shape because on the high highest resolution that I got of Didymos, there appears to be eroded upper layers to the hull, and I use that term very specifically. I mean, if you an object in space for 60 million years, give or take, uh, which is how old I think this stuff might be, over time, micrometeorites will erode, 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 but the upper stuff is the most eroded. The lower stuff is protected by the upper stuff. So you don't get a sharp edge. You get a diffuse network of increasing density with lots and lots and lots of holes. And yeah. I think the geometry before the, we'll call them meteor shields were blasted away, had a different shape than the diamond underneath. So because this is so overexposed, you may be seeing the very low density, very dark upper layers that the overexposure brought out either again accidentally or deliberately yeah well again from another angle uh this is i guess my number four on the second poster it's called um didymos lycia cube and in this one richard what i'm seeing and i did a little drawing again is you see a tip a tip you see all these sort of converging lines mm. in our sort of diamond shape, and you literally can see a highlight at the very – It's like point an apex. Where... It's like the point exactly. of an arrow. Exactly. Or, or a warhead, you know, although yeah. a half-mile-wide warhead is not really – it's just a metaphor, guys. Just a metaphor. Yeah. But again, Richard – See, I these mean, symmetries are what yeah. really to me are the are the giveaway. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And And they – they don't stop. It just keeps repeating. So if we if we bounce out of this little poster and go to my number three, so this would be uh, I call this Didymos three. It's just real simple. And this would have been the dart um, darting past <laughs> and taken and and I guess it's a screen capture from one of the. Um, uh, actually, no, no. It's a very high res image that came out of NASA, and then a friend of mine did some work on it. Look at the fuzziness around yeah. the edges. That's the upper levels of the hull 
which have been eroded away to where they're kind of like the ancient lunar dome. Yeah. You know, there's only a pale vestige of what it used to be, but it means you're looking at layering and the top parts protect the bottom layers. And but see, it's that diamond geometry that I just find. Yeah. And then there's all the geometry on the surface. Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't go into that on this one, but because I, I was looking for this ribbing, like literally it looks like, you know, a, a superstructure underneath this thing. And so my drawing, I did one, which um, I've tried to reveal. And then I did a kind of a speculative one. Uh, it's my number three. I call it Didymos Faces of a Diamond Digital Illustration 2022. Like it would have looked like when it was new. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's just a it's just a sketch. It's an idea, but again, symmetry. It's called a concept, <clears throat> concept art. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, Richard, for me, it's just more verification that these are very, very unusual um, discoveries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and so if we bounce out of that one and go to my number four, doing a lot of bouncing um, tonight. Okay. Yeah. We're bouncing. <laughs> I try to bounce it. Bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. <laughs> so now I'm focusing on Demorphous and there was two spots, which again, for I, those people not following the bouncing ball, see, there was a, there was a pun there. Dynamos is half a mile across. Dimorphos is 560 feet, almost 600, like two football fields, you know, edge to edge. Yeah. And this is, again, just to tease out, I'm going to, Keith, I'm going to send you something a little later because um, it's oh, a little personal. Oh, so cool. <laughs> Look what you've well, done. Yeah, yeah. So I grabbed, okay, this reminds me, Richard, of a show we did way back. I think Keith Laney was on it. And we were looking at Bennu, these beautiful, again, sort of uh, octahedron-shaped uh, so-called asteroids. And there were all these strange things on top of these asteroids, which we kind of like – I think Keith had captured one that looked like the Millennium Falcon. And again, I think we're looking at something very unusual on the surface. So if we scroll down a little bit to my number two, this is mm -hmm. close up. A, to me – has a very peculiar shape. I did a little illustration. Um, I don't know, Richard. I'm uh, I'm seeing structure. I'm seeing a lot of right angles. I'm seeing. I think these are, are two smaller, like spaceships, scout ships, yep. shuttles, like the Enterprise shuttle, yep. parked on the surface of this bigger moonlet, <clears throat> this space station, this whatever this bigger thing was, 600 feet across. And I think they've been were left there, and they're just eroded to hell because they're so old. In fact, the one B looks almost like some images I've seen of potential Nazi flying saucer spacecraft that I are know. somewhere, you know, with that double ring of the of the uh, apex of the of the hull and all that. Yeah. These things look like little ships. They don't look like appendages that are part of the underlying spacecraft. They look like little things that set down were abandoned and have been quietly decaying into rubble for millions of years. It really has that feel. It has. Oh, there you are. Look, look at the sketch below B. You've got, yes. you've got the yeah. double ring perfectly. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that, and again, you know, again, symmetry, there's a variety. It's yeah. It's amazing. It's almost mm. like different. We've talked about this different. It's models. the it's, geometry, stupid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. So let's go to my number five. And I, I, you mentioned it, uh, and I drew it, and then I compared it. So I took a, 
some images from uh, some Star Trek. In, oh, you know, like, look at that. Yeah. So the, I know one of them is the well, remember, in space, not only can't they hear you scream, but you don't need streamlining. <clears throat> exactly. And, and it just caught – I mean, again, it's one angle. Geometry. Uh, yeah, I, exactly, Richard. For me, this is speaking of something highly organized, something structured, but like you say, so heavily decayed and messed up over time that it's just – it's become something that's – you know, like here on Earth, it would be something sitting in water like an old tank or an old plane sitting in the bottom of the ocean or something and just decaying over time, or like the Titanic, you know, and I'm seeing the same kinds of things. So, yeah, so that's my um, my uh, sort of my illustrations for tonight and my speculations, and I'm going to add a little something later on and clear the way for everybody else. Excellent. Well, this is a perfect segue to Ron because Ron, have had, I've been having this kind of running conversation for the last week. And I kept telling him, no, we don't want to leave it on the cutting room floor. We want to save it for the show. So we basically not sorted out anything. We are, we are kind of at loggerheads on, on Ron's model. But there are parts of Ron's model that I totally agree with, and there are parts of Ron's model that I do not agree with. So before we get to Ron, since we've got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour, kind of give me your big picture. Um, the thing that bothered me when I kind of tracked back the discovery process of this system, Didymos and Dimorphos, it was first found in 1996 by a bunch of, you know, guys, professional astronomers at, I think, um, um, uh, one of the big Hawaiian telescopes. And then it wasn't until 2003 uh, at a mainland telescope, I believe it was Kitt Peak, but I might be wrong, or the Stewart Observatory in Arizona, where another group of guys found the little satellite, uh, Dimorphos, and found the light curve, the 11-hour, 55-minute light curve, and the fact that the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos is exactly arranged so that every 11 hours, 55 minutes, Dimorphos would go in front of Didymos, and there would be an eclipse, or what we call a transit. And it would last a few minutes, and then Dimorphos would go around behind, and it would be eclipsed. And this was all decoded by means of light curves, because no one was actually seeing this system as two little twinks orbiting each other because they're so small compared to how far away they were. And it was not until we got those uh, Draco images, we actually saw the surface of these with optical cameras for the first time. Although Arecibo did do some radar imaging some years ago, which gave us a rough uh, diamond shape for Didymos in the literature going back several years. <clears throat> What's really interesting to me was the fact that, A, the orbit plane was aligned exactly to where you could see it only from the Earth eclipsing, and B, the 11 hours, 55-minute period. And I'm going to leave this question now till after the break, but why wasn't the orbital period exactly 12 minutes? It's so close. Was it maybe originally 12 hours, not 11.55? And why was it changed? And does that give us a clue to how long the system was in place waiting for us, for NASA, for the human race to come and find it? And that's a prelude to our conversation with Ron Gerbron when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return right after this short break. Don't touch that dial. You have no idea what you would be missing. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Side of Midnight for this Saturday, October 8th. We're talking about Didymos. We're talking about the Dimorphos impact, the DART mission, the so-called asteroid redirection test. And I must say that for the last uh, week or so, I've had a lot of uh, interesting conversation with Ron, Ron Gerbron, who is our resident generalist. And you can read the bios of all of our panelists tonight. I don't want to waste a lot of time going into them, but you've heard them if you're friend of the show, follower of the show. You've heard them many, many times before. So without further ado, let me introduce Ron. Ron, the only thing I think we agree upon is that these two objects were artificial. And then from there, our ideas begin to diverge. So take it up where I left off. Uh, okay. Or push aside everything you said and uh, replace it with um... – <laughs> other thing uh no yeah you're you're right we uh, that 
that to me is a is a prime directive. That's rule number one. We have to make people that are not obsessed with this sort of material uh, aware of the fact that things like this can be artificial. I'm quite sure there's a few rocks floating around out there, pieces leftover pieces of exploded planets and so forth. But uh, the stuff that NASA seems to be so interested in is remnants of prior times when people were making things and using things. And I even have a, an explanation of potential thoughts uh, on why they're, they've got all that clutter on the outside. Uh, let me start with that, just to, just to derail things a little. Uh, everybody listening probably is aware of the fact that um, Perseverance rover on Mars has picked up a couple of hitchhikers here and there, and one of them being a rock that got stuck inside one of the wheels and wasn't doing any apparently any permanent damage, but uh, I don't know. Is it, Richard, is it still there? I think it's still there, yeah. There's no way to easily dislodge it, and uh, it's not doing any damage. It's just kind of stuck, you know, kind of in a yeah, crevice. And, right, and it's, it's the stuck part that gave me the idea. I'm not saying it's the exact same thing going on, but in the case of these um, remnant, uh, these broken battle-scarred warcraft uh, floating around there, um, in the outer parts of the solar system. Uh, although this one, you know, isn't that far away as, as those things go. Uh, I think they, there may be some sort of um, system that provided gravity for them that is, to a certain extent, passive, and it's still there, and I think it makes them somewhat attractive. could just be magnetism, but it could also be some sort of field. And it's... Uh, so it tends to accrete things because the things that are there are not regular on the outer surface. Uh, and I direct uh, everybody that wants to, to go to my images. Um, just keep scrolling down from um, Andrews and you'll see them. And I put there's a little gallery of um, asteroid photos uh, so that everybody can pick their own suspicious looking objects. Uh, on the surface there. I think there should be sharp enough for that for most people. And, um, yeah, that may be where some of that stuff's coming from. That's complete speculation. Leave that float. But it, when it, as it comes to the most... Uh, <laughs> Leave that float. Very interesting. Leave yeah. that float. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, dimorphos is shaped like a lemon, which I find interesting. Um, well, it's actually what yeah. we call technically a McLurian or Jacobi ellipsoid, which are which are objects, they're not spheres, they're they're fluid assemblages of material. Uh water in the space station, when they do their water experiments, water drops, they form these very you know, egg shaped uh uh geometries. Because one of them you form in free space, that's the McClurian ellipsoid, where you're simply taking a body which is not held together other than by gravity. It can be a lot of separate objects, boulders, rubble, you know, uh, old man of refrigerators, whatever. And if there is no tensile strength between the particles, they will be held together only by gravity. And if you spin the object, they will take this beautiful, smooth, elliptical shape in three dimensions. If you put one of those in orbit around another object, like Dormophos is orbiting Didymos, then you have what's called a Jacobi 
ellipsoid, which basically the long axis, the, the axis pointed toward the primary, in this case, uh, Didymos, is longer than the length measured sideways or up and down. So all three sides are not the same length. All three, uh, uh, you know, lengths are not the not the same size. So that's that's what would happen if these things are composed of individual rubble, not held together by some kind of tensile strength like metals or water, or, you know, solids. But basically, dimorphos is a huge collection of individual objects having that smooth surface. Now, it could Here's be where we divert. It, well, hang on, hang on. Under that smooth surface. The original object could be that shape. I'm thinking a general products hell, uh, hull rather, from uh, uh, Larry Niven's pu puppeteers. Uh, and then rubble could accumulate on top of that shape and assume the shape of what's underneath. We would not know unless we landed and tried to drill and that kind of thing. But that shape is so interesting because it's not the shape of any other asteroid we've ever found in space, ever. Correct. See, it might be a symbol of Manchester United. It also looks kind of like a rugby ball. <laughs> uh, the, um, I know their stock. I uh, had to work the rugby ball in there somewhere. Uh, the uh, yeah, the shape does seem to be unique because the um, most uh, proper is uh, the big one is more a more conventional shape. Um, and uh, as asteroids go, and as spacecraft. And I think maybe some of the fuzziness might be from the fact that the camera that was taking the pictures was uh, targeting it, you know, zooming right toward it at uh, three plus uh, miles a second. And that's- uh, Four, uh, four, sorry. 4.1. Depends on if you're a European or an American. It's, uh, no, it doesn't. A mile is a mile is a mile, gosh. Yeah, but they yeah, but they measured it out. The the uh, Italians measured it out in kilometers. And, uh, then you do the conversion anyway. Go ahead. It comes out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it it was going bloody fast, so it slammed, it slammed into it, and that that is the whole purpose of a kinetic impactor, uh, which is what the the thing was supposed to be. And I think, personally, they knew perfectly well that it was going to have a very different effect than they were claiming. But uh, that gets into who was in charge of this and what were they really up to. But See, the, the, to say, all right, let, let me stop you there, because one of the areas where we differ rather dramatically is you think they knew these were two spaceships orbiting each other, and I don't think they did. And the reason I don't think they did is because unless you invoke the secret space program, which introduces another variable that we have no way of knowing is real or not real. Um, the only data we had non-optical of the shape of the Didymo system was from radar, and that gave us roughly this this uh, diamond shape for uh, Didymos, but it said nothing about the shape of Dimorphos, and it said nothing about the geometry. It just was the overall morphology, and since we flew by Steins, and it was a four-mile diamond, and then we found Ryugu and Bennu, which were 1,500 feet and 3,000-foot uh, octahedrons, very eroded. The idea of a much smaller object, half-mile Didymos, having the same general shape, uh, 
was fits into their so-called natural models perfectly. So, in other words, for your theory to be correct, that they knew, A, it was artificial, and B, they targeted it for destruction, they would have to know it was artificial. And then the question is, how would they have known yeah. since this was only found in 1996? Well, you're conflating a couple of you're conflating a couple of things here, uh, because yeah, both of those apply, both of those ideas apply, but they're not uh, they don't reinforce one another. You know, I think it's artificial because I think that most of the attractive objects out there, uh, and I mean that in the social sense, like oh, let's go look at that one. Based on orbital calculations and anything else they might use, they, you know, this could be some of that ancient hardware. Let's let me let me again stop it. you there. The operative model I've been working on since well, the last 25, 30 years has been Tam Van Flandern, who said there used yep. to be another planet orbiting the solar system and something blew it up. His idea was it was a natural um, event run away something inside planets, energy, not modeled by any current astrophysics. My model was that it was the war, that it was basically blown to hell and gone by the ancient 66 million year great solar system war. And, but regardless of whether it was natural energy or artificial application, the celestial mechanics of the result is what we would see, which is literally trillions of fragments and an immense amount of dust, all different sizes, all different geometries, some loaded with water, some loaded with other chemicals coming from the core, from the mantle, from the crust of an Earth-sized or maybe even super-Earth-sized planet. And so the idea that of the half dozen or maybe dozen asteroids and comets we visited with NASA and other spacecraft now going back decades all of them seem to be artificial, seem to me to be extraordinarily unlikely from sheer statistics. Since if you're looking at I didn't say they were all artificial. Yeah, but I'm saying they are. I'm saying okay, that everyone well, we visited okay, is artificial. Because, because no, you keep in mind my argument. The natural objects solely overwhelmed by factors of millions, the number of yeah. artificial objects out there. So if we only have visited artificial ancient objects, i.e. spaceships, it means NASA and the other guys have to have a list. They've got to know where these objects are, and they've been deliberately targeting them, the spaceships, the habitats, as opposed to the debris from the exploded planet, up to maybe DART. Because when they discovered DART, one of my first thoughts was, okay, they know the Van Flandern model is real, but we don't have an experiment big enough to tell us what would happen if you blow a planet up in the solar system and look at where the debris goes and what kind of damage it does. Oh, wait a minute. In 96, we found this little double system, which is perfect geometrically proportioned and aligned to do such a test. So my first thought was they sent Didymos under the cover story of redirecting Dimorphos. They sent the DART spacecraft to basically test Van Flandern's exploded planet hypothesis. And that's why they're sending Hera, the European mission, back in two years to take pictures and do surveys and see what the damage was of having Dimorphos blown to kingdom come in its front yard less than half a mile away. 
let me address that a little bit. The uh, one of the things that I said that I a divergence here, not just the artificial versus natural thing, but uh, down in my pictures, uh, one of them, uh, number seven, incidentally, but uh, the um, it's, got, it's a well, what uh, Andrew called the posters, and four pieces there, and um, the um, at the bottom, uh, the bottom two images show uh, the uh, show where. Well, they're they're from dark. You know, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, they're from the Draco cameras that closed in on just the before impact. Yeah, right. And the uh, the one on the right is the is the last one before. Max. Second to last. There's there's a little bit of a frame above uh, after, but you can't see anything. So this is the second well, to last full frame. Okay. Uh, if you look carefully at that uh, close up, uh, right before, oh, it rammed into it. Uh, the uh, just a little bit left of center and the image the there. Just look in there, and you'll see there's a square structure. It's not a discrete thing like a door frame or something like that but it is you know it's definitely a box definitely there's squareness there it has geometry yeah yeah you can and it's just it, it, and the one to the left of it and the one above it there's geometry of these objects all over the surface so they're artificial well, yeah, objects well, those are objects this is an assemblage of them that's what i'm saying and that is strangely enough that was the bullseye i mean they it's like they were aiming for no they that was 17 meters away from the bullseye because of the of the inaccuracies of the targeting, I mean, 17 meters after several hundred million miles travel is pretty damn good. But no, yeah, they were 17 meters. Four million miles away. That's, so no, they were not aiming for this object. This object just happened to be one of many large objects on the surface, which is sitting there very close to the impact point, which was just to yeah, the I'm left. Yeah, I'm talking about the large cubic thing that's to the right of it, to the left of that large whitish cubic thing sticking out uh, a little bit of Kimbo of. The, uh, yeah, just to the left of that, there's like a, um, I, I recognize it because it looks like an old-fashioned foundation. It looks like a simple that simple stone delineator foundation that would uh, precede the construction of a megalithic building. You know, so I said, oh, okay, I recognize that. Well, I think you're reaching. It, it looks like a well, cubicle. No, saying... It looks like a cubicle thing. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't. Well, the cubicle thing is one thing, but next to on the ground, part of the ground, there is like you had laid out a box with rock. And so whatever it's from, whatever it's made of, whatever it is, there's geometry there. It's, anyway, there's no point wasting endless time on it. The point is that they, um, when they hit that thing, uh, I don't think that it was vaporized because you look right above there. Uh, the upper left, upper right on that or way thing there, you'll see that that yellowish colored um, one from the um, color camera on the. Uh, you mean in your poster if you look above it? Yeah, yeah. And what I did there was instead of trying to enhance dust and whatever else was floating around it by you know like. Uh, so you're looking at the Didymos dimorphos pair in the upper right corner of your poster. Yeah, and then you're looking at, at dimorphos, which is the blobby yellowish thing in the upper right corner of the poster. Yeah, well, first off, the uh, on Didymos itself, I completely agree with the 
uh, observation that Andrew made, that's exactly what I thought as soon as I saw it. I said, well, that's just beyond ridiculously obvious. It looks like a loading dock or something. You know, I mean, if it's a square opening, there's... You know, there's geometry. That's all we can say. It's geometric. It's artificial looking. Well, no, there's things. Sometimes it goes beyond geometry. We're looking at manufactured things. They could not have they could not have evolved naturally. Couldn't be ice crystals. Couldn't uh, couldn't couldn't be some you know split piece of God knows what uh, from some prior impact. This is stuff. Yeah, we are we are in agreement. When I say geometry, I mean artificial geometry. It's a shorthand. Yeah, yeah. Well, the when they when you put all that geometry together, you get an object, and I, that's important for people to realize it's a thing. Now, like I said, again, like I said, I don't think that everything floating around out there is a spaceship. It'd be nice, but uh, I don't think there's quite that many. But in the case of this one, uh, I think there's several possible routes where they could have gotten the information that there were such things. I think one of them came within their reach, if if you will. Remember, these are the these are NEAs. These are it's a near Earth asteroid. You know, the, uh, the Trojans and the uh, other ones further out, they've got uh, other groupings. Yeah, the, the Trojans are six degrees ahead and behind of us, and we only have one or two objects in the Trojan points in the Earth's system. This is this is what's technically known as an Amor asteroid. It's not an Apollo. The Apollos go from Earth's orbit inward toward the sun. The Amors are from Earth's orbit outward to pass the orbit of Mars. And, but it is uh, a near-Earth asteroid because sometimes it can get close. See, the thing yeah, that makes this so, so weird is that the orbital alignment. You've got two objects orbiting almost exactly in 12 hours, which is half the rotational period of the Earth. They're inclined in an orbit that literally crosses the Earth and nothing else. So you'll see them eclipse only if you're on the Earth. In other words, I think this system was created as two spaceships orbiting as a time capsule a long, long time ago for Earth, for us, for when we developed a space program again. So what does NASA do? Uh, they go out and blow the thing to smithereens. Now you see. That's not logical. That's totally I, illogical. It's like going, you know, finding being Howard Carter, finding Tutankhamun's tomb and taking a stick of dynamite and thrusting it in before you catalog the inventory it makes it's zero sense done. it's been done yeah, it makes yeah. zero sense My give first. me a good reason why nasa would blow this thing up deliberately that's uh, our not, that's our disagreement by the way folks no 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 i do not think that nasa proper uh went out there with the intent of blowing this thing up that's that's carrying the cloak and dagger stuff a little too far i believe it's possible that the mission may have been sabotaged in a way, sabotaged with information, you know, have to damage the hardware, uh, and somehow convince them to uh, provide a tremendous overkill in the impact. Might just take slight adjustments in the Which impact. allows me to bring up the JPL guy who posted on unmannedspaceflight.com. He did the calculation, and he was stunned to find that the impact energy, the kinetic energy, the 4,000 to 6,000 pounds of TNT equivalent was a thousand times the energy required to blow a rubble pile asteroid, which was their model, to kingdom come. 
a thousand times the gravitational attraction of all those little pieces to form that beautiful elliptical egg. And nobody inside NASA checked. Well, here's the thing. I have a, as you know, I have an engineering friend who actually works on CubeSats and he's mostly concerned with getting them up there. He's trying to find ways other than rockets and just getting them in space. Right. Uh, and I had a nice, I had a talk with him the other day based upon some other uh, uh, competitor of theirs using a basically something like a um, an old fashioned uh, uh, Goliath killing slingshot. Basically, yeah, it's called it, 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 mean, it's, it is called a spin launch uh, um, uh, launch that's vehicle. That's the name of the comp- That's the name of the company. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, basically a huge rotating thingy that a centrifugal force is supposed to kick this thing up to high altitude, then the rockets ignite, and it's a much cheaper way to get into low Earth orbit. Yeah, they're they're still working it out. It's got it produces ten thousand g's, which is a little tough on the payload in most cases. Uh, well, the other problem is rocket. the ablation due to heat going through the lower atmosphere. Because if you're yeah, accelerating not- that fast, you'll burn yourself up in the bottom ten miles. No, well, you can deal with that. That's uh, more than you can the the squash factor. Actually, uh, not really true. There was a guy named Gerald Bull who wound up working with Saddam Hussein to produce a giant gun to basically bombard Israel with a nuclear weapon from 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 Iraq. And before he went to work for Hussein, he was working in Canada at a university that a colleague of mine was also posted at. And so I had a great view of Gerald Bull's early work. He convinced the U.S. Navy to butt weld two 16-inch guns to form a version of this launcher basically called HARP, High Altitude Research Project. And the G-loading of the, of the uh, payloads was 16,000 Gs, and the U.S. Navy conducted several successful tests before the Pentagon decided to abandon it because they couldn't figure out a way to get it to go into orbit. It would go up and then come down. Right, right, lower Earth orbit. Anyway, let's not get completely uh, derailed on that. The point is, the point uh, that came out of the conversation was well familiar with the uh, with the kinetic energy equation and the other options there. Yet his first question was, why the hell didn't they have a deep camera? Because I did some work for him and some uh, parallel uh, work on a couple of images that had to do with uh, some of their acceleration experiments and discovered that it looks like a wormhole. Well, you can uh, see the shockwave. Yeah, you can freeze you can the shockwave. You can actually freeze the shockwave. Right. I find that fascinating. But the, um, uh, there's no reason why. And it reminded me of a comment from Linda Moulton Howe from years ago when the uh, Europeans had just gotten to 
a cheaper camera. He also used it. There were better cameras that could have used. And but the the same thing seems to have happened here. No shade on the Italians. This lovely little thing they did. Which, by the way, it's a from the pictures I saw, this is what they call a six pack. So it's a little bigger than people were thinking. It doesn't look like a cube. It looks like a um, uh, half a refrigerator. No, but it's because there's six of them that are. That's the way they align them. Like they were in a packing crate or something. So you're saying that the photos are so bad that they should have put a better camera on the Lachia cube? Yeah, because it's. it's How do we know they didn't and we're seeing deliberately degraded imagery? Well, in the, the, if this is all secret, if they had a hidden agenda, and, and we're yeah, and we're on. basically at the bottom of the hour, so uh, why don't we pick this up on the other side, okay? We're having obviously a very interesting discussion this morning with our participants. Uh, Ron and I agree these are artificial. We also agree that there was some really interesting clandestine aspect to this test. Because, as I said, there's a guy at JPL posting uh, public numbers that uh, he was shocked when he actually did the numbers, that the energy imparted by the DART impact was a thousand times that which would disrupt a um, satellite uh, uh, of Didymos the size of Dimorphos under any reasonable calculation. And he did not come to a conclusion as to why they you know, were that much in error given that NASA really doesn't make errors like that very often. You're on the other side of midnight. When we come back, we're going to have Robert Morningstar join us and Ruggiero Kalo. And uh, Keith is standing by in the background, thinking, ruminating, listening. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Breaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday. October 8th, 2022, 
we're having a very intriguing divergence of opinion because, uh, well, maybe not so much. I just want to know how can you get away in an agency filled with people looking over your shoulder and trying to check and see if you're wrong because that's how you save money. And it's always, you know, the taxpayers' money they're always thinking about. Certainly when I was at NASA, it was uppermost in everyone's mind. Do anything you can to save money because you can use it on the back end and do a longer mission or whatever, whatever. The idea that you could basically fake the numbers and wind up imparting an explosive force to dimorphos a thousand times, again, a thousand times required to completely obliterate this 600-mile-wide moonlet orbiting Didymos, unless there was such a cover-up at so many different levels that this was not just a casual, you know, level upon level upon level, is is pretty hard to kind of understand. So let me bring into the conversation now two additional members of our Enterprise Mission Imaging team. Um, we've got um, Robert Morningstar, who is uh, – well, Robert has a very interesting background. He's uh, uh, studied AI. He's got a degree in psychology. He's an imaging expert, kind of a civilian intelligence imaging expert. And Ruggiero really has a medical background, and he was the first one I turned to to draw an extraordinary sketch of the femur found on Mars from the Curiosity surface rover mission. And both of them, of course, have more than a passing interest in images and objects in outer space. So, gentlemen, welcome to the conversation. What are your thoughts? Thank you. Um, my thoughts are I have a lot to say about from the terrestrial to the extraterrestrial, so I'd like to hear Rodero and perhaps Jonathan first. So let me turn it to Rodero. Thank you, uh... You have to speak a little up, a little louder, please. Going to Andrews. Sorry, I've turned my volume up. Is that better? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I've turned my talk to Andrews' uh, sections. I was intrigued by the shape um, uh, of uh, a larger um, asteroid. Didymos is the big guy, Dimorphos is the little guy. I'll talk about the structure first, you know, I'll put my artist's head on. And um, it'll be nice for me to do some drawings as well, but I, I give some props to Andrew that they're, they're fantastic sketches that he's done. And uh, my, the thing that jumped out at me was the, the shape of this uh, asteroid. And it looks, Are we talking it looks about like, item number three in the posters? Item number three, yeah, that's fine. Okay, point. clicking on that. Yep. Yeah. Still can't, you know, people still can't see it. It's cheating with the shape. It kind of reminds me of like a squid with a half-opened umbrella. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, the umbrella part being showing the linear geometry going through by asteroid structure. Oh, I'd like you to perhaps um, focus on that, Richard. What's your thoughts on why it's so diamond-shaped geometric? Well, I think that's kind of, I, I think these guys, when they built these spaceships and habitats and all that, they had like a limited list of, of morphologies, of geometries, of models. And just like we had Olds and Cadillacs and, and uh, Chevys when I was growing up, 
this is kind of like the stock geometry. And one of my items, I think it's uh, 12, shows the comparison of size between Steins and Didymos. And they're the same diamond shape. They're just different scales. Didymos is tiny, you know, half a mile compared to four miles wide for Steins. But the geometry looks pretty much the same. So I think they came in standard models because if you standardize the model, you can standardize the engineering. You just scale it up. It makes it economically easier to turn out, you know, with CGI or, you know, uh, CAD or, you know, three-dimensional, uh, you know, uh, construction uh, forms and engineering components that will fit either a big model or a small model. The sign is clearly diamond shaped. Yeah. Uh, guys? Uh, is that Ron? In a, yeah, yeah, I'm still... I, I'm, and the, uh, I hope so. Uh, well, here's a piece of it. Yeah, here's I just throw in a piece of evidence uh, to uh, people on the inside, uh, not telling the public everything they know. Um, the uh, show that keeps getting quoted uh, won't stop is uh, the Stargate series, and the motherships in there were two pyramids, uh, bottom to bottom. Uh, and uh, they, in other words, you know, glorified, uh, elaborated, and uh, gaudy-looking version of Bennu or Ryugu. Well, or aren't aren't the, the two pyramids bottom to bottom a an octahedron? There you go. Yeah, yeah. Which is what Bennu and Ryugu see. If if you if you think that the diamond shapes of Ruggiero are in fact whacked off, they've been cut. They've been obliterated, have been obliterated. They also could be original octahedrons that now are truncated and look more like diamonds. In other words, Maybe they've suffered a little swelling. Well, if we're looking, if we're looking at remnants of the war, you can't imagine the level of weapons, the level of energy, the level of destruction that these guys were aiming at each other. Because obviously, in a war, you got to have you know two sides. And if we're looking at relics deliberately positioned so a much later culture could come and find the library, again, that's why I don't think your model, Ron, that they went and deliberately blew this thing to hell makes any sense because it would be like, why would you deliberately destroy the priceless keys to the kingdom? No, no, no. no. I, have a good, I have a perfectly good explanation as to why it uh, happened that way. And I did not then get to it. Uh, Tell us quickly. Okay. Okay. Uh, and Rogero, we will get back to you in a second. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. But I, I don't know about you, but I hate to leave stuff hanging just before it's tied off. The, uh, there's something about asteroids and comets that uh, pops up commonly in the paperwork. If you, if you uh, follow the um, paper trails, that all the predictions and everything else and Incidentally, it's amazing how long it's taken to get around to actually publishing results. Yeah. Papers come out, you know, 15 years before describing something as if it was the answer, and then you find out that it wasn't the answer to whatever it was. And when it comes to asteroids and stuff, the, a lot of them are supposed to be stuff full of ice, one of them off. And um, so I think that uh, whether it was because of mister intentional misdirection by some the person on the inside, or whether it's just a uh, blatant misstep by uh, NASA in the clear, 
uh, I think they thought that this was a solid mass, not a hollow mass. This whole rubble pile thing, I've read 50 papers on rubble piles. None of them make any sense. And not a single one of them is accurate based on the information that we have actually received. So I'm looking, it doesn't believe that. It, I open challenge, find me a paper that actually accurately describes the point they're trying to make compared to any asteroid uh, measurement, direct measurement that we have subsequently done. Uh, there, it's, it's a complete, it's like they're talking about something completely different. Well, in any case, Didymos or Dimorphos, it's not stuff full of ice, so it wasn't hard. This was a kinetic impactor firm, meaning they were going to bang into something and try and nudge it off to the side, you know, like a police car banging into the front fender of a, uh, you know, a runaway car to make it go into the weeds, destroying everything. Uh, and it's a little minor effect. Basically, it didn't matter too much of the purpose. The idea was to see if we could knock this, knock this thing with us a little bit so that it would show up in the measurements from telescopes. Mm -hmm. instead, they, instead, they blew it open because it was hollow. I mean, that picture that I referenced in... in well, I think it was... Car I got rid I, of I, all I, I think it was uh, compartmentalized. Meaning yeah, it was basically a huge, huge building. Think of it like an aircraft carrier or a, or a tramp steamer, which has corridors and passages and cabins and rec rooms and kitchens and all that. It had structure inside, but it essentially was hollow in the sense of it wasn't rock all the way through, like some of the yeah. models said. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, uh, it had it had more rigidity than would be expected, but it was. You know, it was mostly open space in there. You know, you don't know it had bulkheads. And we've yeah. seen other examples in NASA imagery, including uh, oh, Hi Hyperion, which is a moon of Saturn, looks incredibly compartmentalized inside. So continue. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I think that, you know, that's a possible out so, uh, down the mistake. You know, they really thought that they were hitting a solid surface because there's no point. As I told you the other day, uh, there's no point in slamming something into something that's basically hollow. It's like I compared it to a if you have an empty semi truck going down the road and it gets hit by a tank round in some uh, errant adventure, probably happening in Ukraine right now, it'll punch a hole in the one side, it'll punch a hole in the other side on the way out. It's gone, you know, just poof. And if you had a rubble pile asteroid with, you know, nothing but looseness inside, anything uh same thing would happen it would just go right through it actually i don't want to bore everybody but the dynamics are very different than you just described for this remember these are hyper velocity impacts they're much higher velocity yeah, well, than tank shell my engineer friend and he said yeah he said basically it's uh, basically the idea is correct if you hit something hollow it's going to punch through your engineering That's friend true. is wrong okay so move on well, he's getting paid for it. He's putting stuff in orbit. So he I'll is wrong it. about this. He doesn't obviously know about hypervelocity impacts. Let's move on. Uh, 10,000 feet isn't enough? It has to do with the velocity converting the object into a plasma, like a weapon, like an explosion, like an instantaneous release of energy in the interior, because it doesn't just cleanly go through walls. It it in it turns everything incandescent. 
So the energy is in instantly imparted to the whole structure, and you blow the whole thing to kingdom come. It's like putting a weapon inside a tactical nuke and detonating it. Well, bottom line, you can go back to the zero and sorry, guys, uh, jumping in here. The uh, see, I told you we would have disagreements. With, what you're left with, according to that picture, where I filtered out. I didn't filter it out. I just contrasted it out. Instead of trying to show, show off the dust, form the trail, and so forth, I just let that be black to get better edges on the um, two objects. And uh, it is, uh, looks like half of it is still there. It's like a shell, like an eggshell or a lemon rind. You're talking dimorphos, right? I'm talking dimorphos. I'm saying that a large portion of the hull is still intact because it just blew the other stuff away. So that's what's not showing up. And unless somebody has a uh, very clever telescope, we're going to have to wait several years now. Two years. Europeans, Two years. Right, Hera, the Hera mission. Up Hera. Uh, and uh, to take another look at what, uh, what's left. But it's, it's all still there. And, uh, oh, by the way, Richard, I... I know there's a story here. I don't know what it is. I have the Hera project relative to this. Three days, what they did here, and it got completely changed along the way. They had they had a completely different idea. I mean, Hera was supposed to be a... Well, project. they were supposed to get there ahead of time, and Dart would arrive, and they would photograph the whole thing with incredible high-resolution you know, resolution cameras. And because of funding in the European country. Remember, S is a whole bunch of separate countries that have to agree on the budgets. That mission got delayed, 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 so it would wind up getting there two years after dark. Uh, that fits with the old uh, Linda Moulton Howe comment, you know, her question about cameras. Yeah, okay. That's all. Okay, well, I, okay, I, I, I want to bring... I want that closes it up. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. Uh, Ruggiero, any, any comments where I bring Robert on? Uh, I just wanted you to speak about uh, your item 7D. Uh, my 7B. 7D. 7D. Okay, yep. let me let me get to mine. Uh, Some point I need to mention um, there was shapes within explosion. Yeah, seven seven B as in boy. Oh, as in uh, delta. Oh, oh, you mean the Hubble and Webb shot? Yeah. Okay. Can you elaborate on on a few? Particularly the, the web, the orange one. Um, well, there appears to be in the infrared, and this was taken like within 50 minutes of the impact, there appears to be all kinds of interesting geometry that uh, NASA may show us more on Tuesday, or they may not. But this is obviously the ejecta. And what's interesting is that you see those six spikes due to the diffraction of the mirrors, but there's also other rays coming out in a very geometric form. And if you saw the movie, there's a time-lapse movie where these are kind of like rippling clouds leaving the scene of the, of the crime, the scene of the impact. And again, I don't think this is, none of this is simple. And I don't think they expected the magnitude of, of the reaction that they got from just a little tap on a, uh, on a rocky object that would produce a 30 or 40 foot wide crater you mean some of the uh, vertical lines going down through the structure as well as the star shape well the whole all the vertical lines in the image those are the infrared detector 
um, mechanical parts. Those are the scan lines of the image. I'm talking about the ray structures and then the individual geometry, just where it is about to go overexposed. And I've got another version that was taken apparently earlier that I did not have time to uh, to process, but it, it we'll have that ready for next week. That's intriguing. intriguing. There isn't an unintriguing part to any of this. So, Robert, you have a lot you want to say. Um, if we don't obviously finish up before the bottom of the hour, because John's coming on at the bottom of the hour, um, you know, we will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Okay. Um, let me do the space stuff because we're in the midst of it right now. Then I'd like to make some comments, uh, terrestrial comments about the Ukraine war and Armageddon and uh, reveal to you a code that Biden is using and the Russians are also using. The thing that struck me most last week in the initial photograph, which is unfortunately not blown up on the web page, but it is the picture that you're using for the the uh, the main the main uh, notice. You mean you mean the main banner? Yeah, the main banner. Okay. That picture really struck me really hard because the colors of it uh, are really unusual. It, the explosion showered a patina of yellow material on Didymos, and you can see it like an aura around mm -hmm. the main. Now, before box. you continue, let me caution you. Ron and I had this discussion. Ron, you might want to chime in. The colors no, are no, weird. The no, colors. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The colors are not. The colors are dependent on the filters they chose, and instead of red, green, and blue. They chose red, yellow, and blue. I agree. I understand. That's not important. I don't understand at all. Why would they not choose RGB? The difference, oh yeah, they're hiding something, but the difference in the color is the important thing. Now, I want to go to your item. I think it's 7B. Okay. Which is, shows a long shot in space of the explosion and the dust cloud covering, like a giant sneeze, covering up the uh, Didymos and depositing all of that material on its surface. Yeah, that's from the Atlas project. It isn't my image, but it's from the... Okay. Well, you, you, you put it there, okay? Yep. I'm just giving yep. credit. It's in your section. So we've said, you've said that this explosion was a thousand times greater than expected. By NASA. Who has no, 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 no. I didn't say that. I said the NASA guy said when he did the calculation, holy crap, it's a thousand times larger than it was required to blow dimorphos apart. Right. So it means that they expected 1x and he's seeing 1,000x according to your But numbers. he's not part of the project. He's one of the exterior people You're in NASA. Him. matter. You're quoting him. You're presenting his evidence. I'm commenting on what you have presented. Okay. And I'm saying that NASA expected a 1x reaction, and this this guy who published this figure says it's 1,000x, which means to me that the material inside Dimorphos was 999 times more powerful than what was expected to be there. This seems to me. Well, wait, I don't understand that at all. Well, if they, if this, if this guy said that it's a thousand times more than was necessary, the or explosive expected. energy turned out to be a thousand times required to break this thing apart and distribute yeah. the pieces. So, so are you saying it was not, volatile? 
Yes, exactly so. I think it was volatile. I think that what we're seeing is a space war. So you're I, saying that the impact triggered a much larger yeah. intrinsic explosion. Yeah, it might even be, dare I say it, a neutron-like explosion that just vaporized the material that, that um, Dimorphos was made of or contained. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, hang on a second. Hang on. If these are two ancient yeah. spaceships, and yeah. spaceships need to have engines, and engines yeah. need energy, fuel. what if, forget fuel, energy, you know, okay. where we're light years beyond rockets. We're, okay, right. we're into field and hyperdimensional propulsion technologies. If the impact triggered the release of hyperdimensional energy from the engines, that would account for everything we're seeing. Exactly. And I will show you data at the end of the show that reconfirms re exactly that. That's my point, that what we see, we're seeing is the destruction of a spaceship and that dimorphous i want to come congratulate andrews he always brings great insight when i saw andrew's first um, diagram tonight and saw the opening in the bottom of didymus it looks like an entrance and it looks like an entrance to something that i have seen on earth which is remarkable have you ever seen the entrance to the temple of delphi in greece yeah. It's a cave. It's a cave that has been sculpted to have a perfect right angle. It's almost like uh, it's almost like a pyramid, but it's artificially modified natural geology. Yeah. Okay. And polished yeah, that. And, and that looks to me like an entrance to the interior of Didymus. The uh, the next point. Let me see. I, I wrote these down. That would have been item number one in Andrew's posters, the sketch. Yes, yes. And, and Andrew also did some extra work on that that makes it look like there's machinery or a conveyor belt or a ruptured metal at, at that entrance. Um, as I said. Well, we're looking at something that's on the order of a ship. It's a quarter mile. I mean, biggest aircraft carriers are 1,000 feet. The biggest yeah. ship I found on Mars is 2,000 feet. So a 2,500-foot yeah. spaceship with engineering and piping and motors and generators is totally within the realm of this speculation. And what, what always accompanies our supercarriers? A bunch of other ships, yes. Destroyers and cruisers. Right. So, yeah, so this, this may be what we are seeing, um, a, a two-spacecraft, a two space fleet. Um, the Andrews, Andrews pictures, you know, opened my eyes to that opening, that aperture, I think, in Didymus. And um, we are seeing space war. And the other part is... Wait, wait, wait. All right. Space war when? Now or 60-plus million years ago? Continuing. Wow. How, how... All right. Please back this up, gentlemen. How do we fight guys with beam weapons and hyperdimensional technology by throwing rocks? Well, if we know that, you know, if you fire an incendiary bullet at a, a tank of gas, like white heat, when James Cagney's on top of those uh, yeah, sure, sure. gas containers, it, it's, going, it's going to detonate. And I'd like to say that during World War II, Lord Mountbatten was in Burma, 
and they found a nest, an alien, an alien base, and they went in. And as I say there was there was a battle between the aliens and Lord Mountbatten's uh, OSS uh, troops, and I said that that was the first battle between um, lasers and hot lead, and hot lead won that. So it's very powerful what we have as well as kinetics. But you you know you had an insight into this about two weeks ago. You said. Uh, and you were talking about expectations. You said, what would happen if we, if we fired a high-powered bullet into a pillow full of feathers? Mm-hmm. I think that that's what, what we've seen, except it's not feathers. It's some kind of energy that exploded. This thing looks to me like we they fired at something that had some uh, energy under extremely high pressure, and it blew up like a giant balloon, and the balloon vaporized. Okay. You're on the right trail, but the real answer is even more extraordinary than that, okay? Now, we are getting close to the top of the hour. We've got about three minutes, so let's uh, – uh, I'm going to bring you back after the hour so you can talk about Ukraine, Robert. So yeah. let's, let's finish up Didymos from your perspective. So you're thinking we're in some kind of current war, but see, yes. everything we've talked about works if we just hit a derelict – something incredibly ancient with incredibly advanced technology. We had no idea. NASA had no idea what they were really doing. They triggered something. The results were totally off scale, but there was no secret agenda other than maybe they were trying to test Van Planeren's model and the results totally dwarfed what he would have expected. Yeah. Richard? Who is this? Oh, oh, this is Ron. Sorry. This is yeah. This came up when I was talking to Andrew earlier today. Because uh, I, I think it's I, I'm I'm resonating with what uh, Robert's saying there. Sometimes there are triggering events just to see what will happen. And I uh, the in the old days it involved a paper bag, a dog doo doo, and lighting it on somebody's doorstep, and then you ring the doorbell and you go away. That's exactly what we just did. I was, I was going to say something along the line without the dog doo Suspicion that something, based on suspicion, I think that if we have these spacecraft that are out there and they don't want us to know their spacecraft, the most logical thing for them to do would be to camouflage themselves and to pretend that they are asteroids. Okay, guys, I, we are at the top of the hour, so let's hold this for the for – the, you know, after the transition. My, this has opened up a can of um, something. See, my model is that all this stuff is incredibly, incredibly old, and the war we're talking about took place a long, long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, right in our backyard. In fact, Earth and our condition on Earth is the result of this ancient war and all the weird stuff that's happened ever since. And the timing of the war is 66 million years ago when a planet was blown up in the model deliberately, wiped out a whole species on Earth, the dinosaurs, and a whole bunch of others, giving rise to a new experiment, which has been evolving now over 60-plus million years. If, in fact, NASA knew any of this model and took it seriously... The idea that any contemporaneous war would be us against hyperdimensional weapons lobbing rocks just doesn't make sense to me. What does make sense is that they started out with one secret program, i.e. 
with kinetic energy to blow dimorphous up to see how Van Flanderen worked. And the result was totally unmodeled and unexpected and overperformed extraordinarily well. More when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome, everybody, back to the other side of midnight for this now Saturday night, Sunday morning, October 8th, October 9th, here in the land of enchantment. What I'd like to do now is kind of go through a couple of other of my slides, because this will be the great segue to bringing Robert back on to talk about Ukraine and John Womack back on to talk about how we arrived at uh, some of these very interesting graphics that illustrate the model. So if everybody goes back to the other side of midnight and they click on my items, uh, you can find a uh, fast links thingy very close. What you want to do is to scroll down in my items to item number 13. Um, about a week after the impact, the first of the large professional images taken by major observatories around the Earth. There were, NASA organized like 13 or 20-some observatories all over the world to look at and record the impact if they were on the right side of the planet, because you can't obviously be seeing Didymos or Dimorphos if you're on the wrong side during the impact. And then as the Earth rotates around during the first night, and then the second night and the third night, um, they would take pictures, and they had this variety of very large telescopes with, you know, like the one that uh, I'm showing here was taken by a telescope with a 12-foot-wide uh, mirror. That's over four meters in diameter. And it was a time-lapse of several different images put together to perform one color. Um, if you look at the background, you see these colored streaks. 
red, green, blue. Uh, the cameras to get the highest sensitivity and resolution on professional telescopes are not, you know, framing cameras. They don't take one color image all at once. They take different filtered images and then put them together in the computer. So in the time between the images, the background stars are moving relative to the asteroid orbit around the sun. So there's a differential. So that's why the stars appear different colors and the streaks appear to be different lengths because they were basically tracking on the asteroid Didymos as opposed to um, uh, the background stars. And you'll see there's some really interesting geometry embedded in this picture. So now you go to 14. This is a uh, kind of contrast-enhanced version of a graphic that John produced for us, which shows if you click on it and you look at the very center of the Didymos uh, system on this scale, you see a little diffuse tetrahedron. It's obviously two-dimensional. It looks like an equilateral triangle, but it's got to be three-dimensional in space because nothing would hold something in two dimensions. And off to the left, you see this extraordinary long streak. I didn't have time to put a scale bar on, but that streak is about 6,000 miles long, which means from one corner of the picture, upper right, to lower left is 12,000 miles. On the scale of this photo, the actual Didymo system, which is about half a mile across and is composed of a half mile object and a 600 foot object, would be like, a, you know, a pixel. All right. So you're not seeing the actual system. You're seeing what's going on around it. And after the impact, an enormous amount of material was released from somewhere. And then a lot of it was in very fine form, like on the order of microns, you know, hundred thousandths of an inch across little dust flakes. And sunlight can push those around in space in zero gravity. And so you have basically a dust curtain, which is acting like red dye in a clear stream or in a clear tank of water where you stir the water, you don't see anything going on, you put the dye in and you see vortices and ripples and wavelets and all that. The dye makes the invisible visible. Now we go down to item number 15. This is a larger tetrahedron that I had John put around his inner tetrahedron because as you can see, it conforms to the jets which are emanating from the Didymo system. And if you take a ruler and you compare the length of these jets, which are extending in a three-dimensional tetrahedral pattern, they're over a thousand miles long. And yet they're coherent. They're narrow cones. By the way, anybody want to guess the angle of the cones? I asked uh, Andrew to measure and he didn't have time. I'll, I'll save you the trouble. There's 39 degrees wide, which is twice 19.5. And that's, of course, not an accident because I believe that what the mainstream is interpreting in that long beam extending off to the right, if you put a sphere around this and put the axes of rotation in the right position, I think that beam is, in fact, an ejected beam from the Didymo system at what would be in spherical coordinates 19.5. In other words, what the impact did, back to Robert's idea that they triggered something 
massive in the way of an energy release. I think what they, excuse me, triggered was a hyperdimensional torsion field release of energy that they had no idea was there and that they could not possibly imagine triggering with a mere four to 6,000 pounds of equivalent TNT, which takes us to item 16A and 16B. These are two images, um, one normal exposure, the other lightened, taken by an amateur named Dr. Sass, also in Chile, using a 0 0.06 I'm sorry, point, yeah, 0 0.6 meter telescope uh, mirror, which is much smaller than the uh, four meter telescope that took the previous pictures. And now you can see these are just from a couple days ago. This is almost two weeks after impact. Look particularly at the bottom image in 16B and the upper image in 16A. You can see now that the tetrahedral shape has expanded to fill the entire space around the jets and is measuring well over 2,000 miles across, if not bigger, and it's maintaining this extraordinary coherence. And let me tell you what I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing the dust tracing out the invisible hyperdimensional torsion field of the release of energy from a higher dimension into 3D that same geometry which produces 19.5 signatures on rotating planets and produces around certain double star systems, extraordinary geometric patterns like you see in 17 of the same red rectangle nebula. And on, on Saturn, you can see the double tetrahedron octagonal geometry in terms of the hexagon anchored to the planetary spin of Saturn, which is a huge fluid of hydrogen and helium spinning uh, about every 10 hours. So what we're seeing, I think, in the Didymo system is NASA's inadvertent, I don't think they planned this at all, inadvertent triggering by slamming their spacecraft into Dimorphos of a hyper-dimensional energy release of extraordinary proportions. And I go back to the laboratory experiments of my now-departed friend, Dr. Bruce De Palma, who demonstrated these kind of energy releases when you take rotating systems and you abruptly perturb them with what is called forced precession. And he measured the effects with the Accutron way back in the 70s. He also measured the dynamical strange properties by slamming DART into uh, Dimorphos, literally off-center so that it changed the orbit plane. They essentially changed the angular momentum of the entire Dimorphos system, releasing an extraordinary amount of hyperdimensional torsion field energy and blowing Dimorphos and maybe even Didymos to kingdom come in a way that they never in any physics that they've ever been taught could have imagined. And now on Tuesday, they have to pick up the pieces and give us some reasonable sounding mainstream explanation because they can't admit to any of this. Reaction, guys? Yeah, and I have a very strong reaction. Um, I think I that think. we're seeing a cover-up and that the kinetic impact story is a cover-up 
for an actual beam weapon, which is what we're seeing coming in from the right, detonating that and creating that uh, the uh, 39.5 angle uh, tetrahedron. Because somehow this picture doesn't make sense to me that the image should be so bright right next to the uh, the impact zone and so diffused so far away. It, it seems to me that we may be seeing a secret particle beam weapon that NASA has used and it's covering it up with the story of crashing and making it a kinetic impact. That's just my hypothesis. Okay. That's what the picture says to me. Do you understand what I mean about why should it be brighter right there, the brightest part? Well, the answer it, 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 it shouldn't be that bright. Yes, 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 yes. The answer, look, if, if, the, if the beam is emanating from what used to be the dimorpho system, and as it gets farther away, very narrowly collimated, confined, and gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. The reason is that it isn't really a beam. It's a, it's a projection of dust particles, and the density scattering sunlight is so much greater nearer what used to be the asteroid than much farther away. In fact, the length of that um, beam now in the, in the lower image taken by the amateur the other night is now over 8,000 kilometers, which is like six, 7,000 miles, which is extraordinary uh, you know, for this object, just extraordinary. I'm talking about your uh, image 15, and uh, just conversely, you could actually be seen as the beam coming in from the upper right and striking. And yeah, except, except that they would have, to, would have to obtain for days. These are instantaneous pictures taken you know, hours and days after the actual impact. So there's nothing left there to beam anywhere except for dust. What the dust does is it collimates in their model because of celestial mechanics. I think it's collimating because of the hyperdimensional forces that were set up in this whole system. And that's why I want you to go back to uh, one of Andrew's, no, one of my pictures. Look at 7C. Look at the bottom right-hand Enlargement in 7C? Yes. What, is it, what does it look like to you? The inside looks like a lot of particles being illuminated. No, 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 no. Just, is it just the geometry? What does the shape look like? It looks like part of a cube. Uh, I see a splattered egg. It's, uh, well, on the right side, it's remember, this is all very time conscious. If you, if you catch the picture early, you get one geometry. If you wait three hours, the geometry changes. Now, did you, do you, and I didn't have time to put this up, but do you remember the images I put up of the Tonga explosion? Yes. What was there? What was the shape of that explosion? There was a cube. It was a cube, which is a double tetrahedron, and the energies were larger than any similar volcanic explosion ever recorded and rippled around the world for hours and hours and hours, and the morphology changed very rapidly because it was detonated at the base of the atmosphere. But I think exactly the same technology was used deliberately uh, in the South Pacific and inadvertently by NASA in smashing into Dimorphos because NASA could never have imagined doing this with all the public hype if they knew what they were going to get. You know what's really interesting? In, re in the recent years, since the Tic Tac uh, expose, pilots and people around the world have been taking pictures of a UFO 
that is a cube inside a sphere. Yes, exactly. It was like a tutorial. It was a lesson. It flew right next to the F-18. Yeah. and uh, That's the physics. That's the layout of the physics. Basically saying, look, you guys, we control this stuff. What do you control? RP-1. Yeah, I have some pictures in my archive I downloaded this week of specifically that, a black cube. You've made an exquisite connection. Okay, let's leave leave some room here for other people. Anybody else want to talk about this? Andrew? Sorry, sorry, I was on mute. Of course. Uh, Richard, I I know um, uh, Jonathan would like to get a, a word in here, and then I would like to say something. John, are you there? No, I am here. There I'm you are. Standing by very patiently. Okay. So well, go ahead, Andrew. I always save the best for No, no, no. Let, let's go with you first, and then we'll come back to Andrew. Since you created those wonderful diagrams for us. Oh, um, yeah. Why don't I just run through those images real quick? Okay. So we go to Jonathan in Radio with Pictures. Go ahead. Yeah, item number one is what you sent me to have a look at, and you asked me to put a 3D model in front of it. And I love how people that aren't 3D modelers or like if you're not a baker, you say, oh, you just make a cake and put some icing in a candle. It's fine. But, you know, a wedding cake, there's more to it. So <laughs> Richard says, just put a 3D model there and rotate it until it fits. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess there's sometimes when I expect too much of you. So item two, I I put a pyramid uh, near the the middle, and, of course, it reminded me of the Pink Floyd album cover. And um, what did they know? Yeah, right. So and then item. Oh, oh, I just closed the Web page. Item four, I just tried another. rotation position with the 3D pyramid I put over it. And then um, I'm navigating my way back to the page because I accidentally shut it down. Been there, done that. That's the advantage of live radio. Okay, number five. And then number five, Richard kept saying, just rotate it. It'll get the position. And um, I was not conveying that, Richard, you were looking more in a two-dimensional frame of mind because when you're working in the 3D world, you want to have a minimum number of angles to review an ob- a 3D object from the front, the side, the top, or the bottom, and then an oblique angle. And that will give you a, a good idea of where it is in space, or the size of it, and the dimensions. And and we don't, we didn't have that in, in your, um, you know, you kept saying it'll fit, and it's not fitting. So what I did is I drew um, lines connecting. Oh, so Richard, you sent me a, a sketch. You put a, a a big pyramid in the picture. I guess that's number five. And number six, I'm showing you that it's not fitting. Number seven, it's not fitting. Number eight, I went ahead and drew this 3D model uh, to fit your figure. And then in number nine, I rotated so you can see what I was talking about. It doesn't fit because the triangle that you're trying to get me to fit this to is stretched. 
Why does that shape look weirdly familiar? Which ones? The one, the, 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 the stretch triangle that he generated in 3D from my 2D, you know, sketch. Number nine looks like the pitch, uh, the 51 degree or so pitch of the uh, Great Pyramid. The other one looks like a Mesopotamian pyramid. It looks like the Star Destroyer from Star Wars. That's what I'm thinking <laughs> of. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Huh. See, and again, we're we're seeing a partial fill-in with the dust. The only reason we see any of this stuff is because of the dust. It depends on if the dust is clumpy or the dust is smooth. We know the dust is coming out in incredible geometric you know, fans. And again, they're, they're coherent. They're linear over a thousand plus miles. What is maintaining the coherence? Well, we can't see the distress signal that's being broadcast, but it's, <laughs> it's coalescing some of the dust. Okay. It would be nice if people could be a little serious about some of this, because I think this is Basically, see, uh, my model is that everything now is happening at once. We're on the edge of nuclear war because uh, someone does not want us to know that we're not alone. We've delayed Artemis again and again and again because someone does not want us to go back to the moon and discover we're not alone. They don't want to discover the reality of the breakaway. In other words, we're supposed to be maintained in prison, and someone is willing to up to and include raise the specter of nuclear war to distract us so we don't understand we are not alone and who the players are and how we relate to the geopolitics going on out there. Well, that's what's neat about tomorrow night's show is that it shows that we have these ancestors and the evidence is right here on our, our prison of planet Earth. We don't have to go to the moon or Didymos or anything. This is right in Utah. And well, it's around the world, too, but mainly Utah. And how are they going to cover this up once I, you know, if, if this gets out into the mainstream archaeology and geology? And it's going to be pretty tough to cover up. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? <laughs> I think there's a song there, if I'm not mistaken. You ought to write some lyrics. Good, good lyrics. Great title, Robert. Lyrics, lyrics. So, okay, so you wanted to go into why Ukraine relates to all this and secret code. So, go. Yes, yes. Uh, first of all, the first person to bring up uh, the nuclear uh, threat was Zelensky on February 22nd. He said that uh, Ukraine was going to reconstitute its nuclear forces. Putin has not said specifically, I will use tactical nukes. He has said, I will use all of the weapons at my disposal to, to protect the motherland. Now, here's the very weird, weird thing. I just got this report. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't that a distinction without a difference? Because of the available weapons, he has yes. 6,000 nuclear warheads. Yeah, and, and we have about 1,500 from my 1,500 that may work. But let me just tell you this. This thing about Armageddon, here's the weirdest thing. Putin just replaced uh, the general in, uh, in this area in, um, in Ukraine where the bulge is happening. I'm using that in, intentionally to give you a hint of what's happening. He has appointed a new army, an army general who is in the region in the Donbass, but he, now he's going to control everything. His name is Army General Sergei Sorokin. And his nickname 
is general Armageddon because of uh, his actions uh, in Syria. Chechnya. No, it was Syria. No? Syria. 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 So, um, there's there's word games being played and uh, codes being given. But the United States has actually uh, begun the war by attacking the pipeline. It is clear that... Wait, wait, wait. wait. How do you know we attacked the pipeline? How do you know we attacked the pipeline? If you guys know it, just wait. Don't get hysterical. Let's stay calm. It's not in our interest to attack the pipeline. It's definitely not in our interest. It is in our interest because the goal of this war has has been to sever the relationship between Germany and Russia to cripple German industry and make them totally, make all of Europe totally dependent on us. Secondly, Norwegian and Swedish military tracked the activities of the USS Kearsarge in June, which was loitering in the area where this pipeline was detonated. They had helicopters with sounding devices circling the area to find the pipe. And Biden said in January and Newland, Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland said in February that the pipeline would not be allowed to function. And Biden said, she said, the, the pipeline will, will not uh, become a reality. And they said, how are you going to do that? And he said, I promise you, we will stop it. So all these things add up. And the United States is conducting an active aggressive war against Russia, Russia, trying to pin the tail on the donkey. I have had the privilege of reading... Robert, 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 hold on. Who invaded invaded Ukraine? Why did he invade Ukraine? No, who invaded Ukraine? So why is it relevant? Okay. Why is it relevant? The same reason that John F. Kennedy took a stand against uh, uh, the missiles in Cuba. There were 46 biological weapons laboratories that were funded by the Biden, Obama. No, they were funded by the Soviet Union. Ukraine used to be a, Ukraine was a client state of the Soviet Union. Those were Soviet labs. Richard, the, the paperwork is in. The Department of Defense has confessed it. Victoria Newland stated it before the Senate. You literally I saw it. Listen, I have the videotapes and I have the documents. And I also have the RAND document, which stated in January 25th that the United States and Biden administration had to cripple Germany because Germany is the real enemy of the United States. It's industry. It was the powerhouse of European industry. And that if we did not cripple the German industry and European industry, they would outpace us. And you know that RAND paper is a fake, right? No, it's not a fake. Yes, it is. Because everything that that RAND paper cites as a goal is what's happening right now and, and coming true. Now, let me just tell you this. I asked That's not even circular logic, Robert. No, that doesn't prove anything. Ron, whatever you, whatever Ron, you said just doesn't fit. Sorry. Uh, sorry. You say a lot of the logical things, but I have some paperwork to back it up. Keep it clean, guys. Keep it clean. Now, listen. I asked Keith to put a, a video on here. The best source of information is from the field. And there is an American Chilean reporter who has been in Ukraine since the beginning. His name is Gonzalo Lira. I just sat through a three-hour 
briefing, you might say, of him and two other experts in the field who are there in Europe watching what's happening. And you ought to watch that because this is the only guy telling the truth. The fake news media is putting words in Putin's mouth that he hasn't said. They're not allowing him to speak. We can watch his speeches. I watch them. Yeah, well, I watch them and I recite them. I give him airtime on my show. And it's only fair because he's in the same situation that Kennedy was in in 1962, except that now he's Kennedy and Biden is Khrushchev with him. With the uh, the uh, threat of war, that's that's what's really happening, and we shouldn't be looking at this like a football game, cheering. It's a tragedy for the whole world. And Biden, look at how much of Ukraine Putin has destroyed, and how many people, civilians, deliberate destruction of thousands. Brought down on themselves. All he had to say, I will not become a part of NATO. Secondly. I mean, probably fourthly by now. In March, in April, there was hope for peace. Okay, guys, we are at the bottom of the hour. We will pick this up on the other side. This is going in very intriguing directions. Um, I do not agree with Robert's assessment, but it's important in terms of First Amendment to basically put this on the table as part of a panoply of things we are confronting. Here on the other side of midnight, Uh, John mentioned dark side of the moon, triangles in space. This is the dark side of the moon. Tell you what, let me do this. Let me have Ron answer Robert in terms of uh, Ukraine. And the, then I want to bring up the measurements, which is item number two 
uh, up above in my uh, section, actually maybe it's three, I need to go up and actually take a look because I don't remember which ones they are, but I can easily find out. I'm giving you the number, yeah, number five, okay? There has been this extraordinary number of verified UFOs moving at miles per second back and forth over the battlefields of Ukraine. And Ron and I had a discussion the other day, and I, I was probably a little bit too flip because this is something that needs to be seriously considered because a totally unrelated uh, friend of mine sent me this theory after he talked to his Ukrainian friend on the ground, particularly after the Crimean Bridge was destroyed or severely damaged uh, in the last day or so. Um, so, Ron, why don't you want to lay out, please lay out your idea of why there are all these UFOs being clustered over Ukraine? Hmm. Well, I didn't know that we'd brought it out that way, but it's, uh, to me, this is just something that happens in war zones, which means that we're being monitored. And I don't think that most, if any, of these are ours or domestic or terrestrial. Uh, I, but it like it, it goes back in history to Joan of Arc and beyond. If there's something you know particularly interesting, especially in certain areas of the world, uh, it will draw attention. I don't know why they're checking us out. I think they really don't know what we're doing. The ones that are looking indicate it indicates they don't know what they're doing most of the time. Ron, may I comment? You said something. Yes, very yes, important. that's it. That's the whole thing. Something very important before proxy wars, and this yeah. goes back. This goes back to the skies over Nuremberg in the 1600s, where a sky battle was seen between circular objects and triangular objects. Absolutely true. The, the proxy war has been has been waged for the last hundred years, and we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, Richard, when you had Michael Sala on, that the alien presences and that's plural are taking sides, have been taking sides in, in terrestrial wars and using nations as chess pieces. And that's why I'm so adamant, sorry if I raise my voice, because we are being lured into an extraterrestrial trap that will incinerate mankind. And right now on the battlefield, everybody's cheering as if they're watching a football game. And we're watching a terrible tragedy unfold. The Ukrainians think that because they've had made an incursion near Kharkov of 30 kilometers, 18 miles, and they damaged the bridge, that they're winning the war. They're, they're lying to all of us. They're luring mm -hmm. us into a war that could lead to nuclear exchanges, and I am not willing to trade New York, Washington, Los Angeles, and San Francisco to save Kiev. It's their war. They brought it among themselves. There's a blood hatred between these two tribes. No, wait, wait, wait. Russians and Ukrainians no, 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 are related. Yeah. They're related. They're grandparents and cousins wait and sisters. And Listen, they hate. I know Ukrainians and I know Russians, you know? And the language is not the same. And, and the dictator in this case is Zelensky. So listen. Biden is pouring our treasury into Ukraine. I'm just saying that because yesterday was Putin's birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Putin, and I hope we all survive. Yeah. Let me just tell yeah. this. He arrested people for his birthday I, greetings 
video Chris, because it made him look the old. The FBI is busting people who who sing psalms or say in front of abortion clinics, Ron. Robert, True. Robert, True. Robert, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, 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 everywhere, us, Robert. Let, let us try to be a little logical and keep our tempers down. Yeah. If, How about linear? If, if, if Putin is, is the good guy wearing the white hat, how come so many people now around him in Moscow, in the Politburo, in the Kremlin, in the military are defecting and even on state television saying he's got to stop this? It's the same as the anti-war movement that we had here. in. in These uh, are hardliners, people who were totally a thousand percent behind him just wow. seven months ago. Well, you have to watch the, the, the documentary or the report that I, I've offered. I just have to watch Russian state television. I see no, them no. live. Okay, listen. I want to talk about the money. We have given $80 billion plus armaments to Ukraine. And oh, when it's I more hear, now. Yeah, and when I hear the Europeans reporting it, they're saying that the United States has given Ukraine $17 billion. Where is that other $63 billion? He is emptying the U.S. Treasury into Ukraine and pouring it into a government that is controlled by criminal oligarchs. And this was before the Well, war. that is your position. Okay, let me move the discussion okay. to a larger perspective. Okay. My other friend, who Ron does not know yet, but I probably should introduce you. His name is Don. He sent me this separate wow. he sent me this email the other night and it was very interesting. He said, I'm thinking that the UFOs over Ukraine are time travelers and they're all coming back, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, to a nexus point which will decide future human history and they're basically tourists, grad students, advanced degree folks, everybody showing up to see how this turns out. Does the human race prevail, or do we go down in Armageddon? That was his model. It's a good premise. Andrew? It doesn't mean it's true. No, but it's, it's an interesting, yeah. based on the yeah. fact that we have incontrovertible physical evidence that whatever is zipping back and forth in Ukrainian skies by measurements is not drones, terrestrial any kind of aircraft, any kind of surveillance, uh, because they hover, they dart, they dash. We have stereo imagery from two separate observing stations, which the Ukrainians originally had set up as part of a meteor network, which many nations have, you know, um, cameras focused on the same patch of sky from two widely separated points to get three-dimensional vertical geometry of entering uh, objects, speaking of defending us from asteroids. So, Andrew, you're, you're being very quiet. Yeah. Well, I think this is an example of the last half hour, and I respect everybody's position. I, I'm, I'm more aligned with Robert, but we don't need to get into the weeds because that's exactly what we're doing on this planet, and I think we're losing sight of the bigger vision. Richard, my feeling about um, the destruction of Dimorphos is that it's so visual. I mean, it's almost like a Jerry Bruckheimer film or a Michael Bay Armageddon, big explosions. Like, this was an attention grabber. Now, maybe the rank and file in NASA are, are you know, were instructed to hit this, this little thing. But there's a bigger agenda here. It's set off what I would call like a celestial flare. And I want to make a really quick, um, you know, 
personal message here. I, I, I've said something to Keith. He, he might not get a chance to put it up. But years ago, uh, we, we lived near um, some deep water harbors here in, in North Vancouver. And some of the big, you know, uh, uh, you know, oil tankers and transport ships sit in, in the, you know, in the deep bays. And one time, uh, I went out for a kayaking trip with my wife, and we approached one of these tankers. And Richard, we're figuring they're like about 330, three, 330 feet long or so, so similar to Dimorphos. And it was a really quiet day. There was no wind, and the and the water had no chop. And we we paddled probably shouldn't have right up to this freighter and I put my hands on this thing and you know even despite its size it was humming you could feel it you could hear it even in its coldness and its barnacles and, and all the travels that it had done well when this dimorphous thing went off it brought back memories of being so close to something so big and this whole explosion rattled the hell out of me excuse my language it to me, what happened in space, whether it's NASA or a deeper version or somebody else piggybacking on this, was a desecration, a desecration in our solar system. And it's – I don't – look, I don't know where this is going and, and what the demonstration is exactly, although I think you're right, Richard. I think the demonstration is vast power and – I, it, it rattled me. It triggered me. And well, it, let me let me give you another idea. And I put in a call to Rick Levine, and I want to bring him on and discuss this in the next couple three weeks. If this was done to basically release a burst of hyperdimensional energy in the solar system, specifically for Earth to raise our consciousness. Because the reason that we're all acting like idiots is because when the war took place and Planet 4 was taken out, the overall level of connectivity to hyperdimensions drastically fell. Precisely. You can just do the numbers, the angular momentum, you know, De Palma's experiments. So is it possible that under the guise of NASA's experiment, a third party, maybe the good guys, use this as an opportunity, an object lesson – which NASA cannot, I mean, I'm fascinated how they're going to explain this all away on Tuesday. You know, what's their cover story going to be? Um, but if it was designed to raise the hyperdimensional energy level of the Earth, and that's where I get into Levine, the alignments, where is Dimorphos against the background ecliptic of the solar system? Which constellation? What's the geometry between Dimorphos and the galactic center, et cetera, et cetera? And in the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to track him down. He's been on travel, so I haven't been able to reach him. But that's what I want him to do is to figure out if, if Dimorphos suddenly becomes incredibly important as a point energy booster or accelerant for terrestrial consciousness – is it someone, Robert, trying to yeah. intervene in a, you know, Roddenberry kind of way, prime directive, where they don't interfere directly, but they do something that will raise the consciousness of the participants to where they look at each other and go, holy crap, what are we doing? Well, Richard, I agree with you that there may be that element that somebody is trying to raise our consciousness, but at the same time, somebody is unbalancing uh, the solar system. And the analogy that I use... The solar system has never been in balance since the war. It's been sliding toward an equilibrium. It's not reached it yet. Yeah. And the image I I used 
was the balancing of a wheel. When you go to get your tires changed, you put a new tire on the wheel. They put it on a spinning uh, motor, and then they have to move these little lead weights to get it to stabilize. Right. And, and I think that these little things like dimorphous, destroying it, is kind of sliding that little lead weight around maybe to the wrong place or maybe to the right place. All right. Let, let's, uh, that's a very good idea. Let me pursue that, okay? Because when I learned about the parameters of uh, Didymos, the thing that struck me, I want to reemphasize this again. I started with the opening of the show with it, was the fact that it orbited uh, Didymos, Dimorphos orbited Didymos, 11 hours, 55 minutes. And I said, wait a minute. What are the odds that the only object you find in the whole solar system, which is a parent and a twin orbiting in exactly the plane to see the eclipses, so you recognize it like a flashing beacon, happens to have almost exactly the period to go around, which is half the rotational day of the Earth? What are those odds? Because those numbers are not arbitrary. 24 hours and 12 hours are part of the hyperdimensional calculation, part of, the 360, part of the 360 system. So if this was set up as a time capsule, Andrew, which is why you're feeling so bad, and the difference now is five minutes, where'd that five minutes go, Robert? The five minutes went because there has been no equilibrium in the system since the war in our model and everything is still sliding. So it used to be 12 hours, it's now 11 hours, 55 minutes, because there's a loss of energy in the system. All right? But you, but you said that we lost 10 minutes because of this no, experiment. No, when we, when we hit it, their expectation was it would speed up by, by 10 minutes. Ah, so they were trying to make it come into sync, synchronize it. To, no, they were to, trying to simply, I don't think these guys are smart enough to know any of this okay frankly again that's why the tuesday briefing is going to be really interesting how are they going to cover their bear you know what and explain something outrageous by the nasa conversations i've been eavesdropping on nasa people posting numbers saying good god how could they have made this miscalculation mm -hmm. well, so i think that's a Fantastic insight on your part, the 12-hour uh, returning it to us. 12 if it was a time – look, I've been saying for decades now, we now to find the libraries. If you want to send forward in time an archive of how we got into this horrible position and how we get out as a species, and someone else wanted to destroy it – I mean – let's assume for a minute that NASA really didn't do anything, that it was a third party, the breakaways who blew it to kingdom come as a demonstration of their power, their weaponry in something that NASA now has to take the blame for as a background to what's going on between Putin, Biden, and Ukraine. Uh, guys, can I add a vector? No, you're not supposed to say a word. You're supposed to say they were totally silent. <laughs> Oh, go for it. Grunt, grunt, grunt. Go for it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you're you're nibbling on the edges of it. That's what I'm saying. There's uh, you, um, you know, the, none of this stuff is uh, planar. You know, there's always other facets. And what is something that has popped up in literature and just theorizing for a long, long time that if the aliens showed up 
and said, hi, we're here to take this planet back or take it over or, you know, some other. The chart for the Charles Fort model that we're property. Yeah. Any of the, yeah. Any, any variation of that. Uh, the, uh, the supposition that uh, is almost automatic is that everyone on earth would band together for getting their local squabbles. That's what, uh, that's what Gorbachev and, that's what Gorbachev and Reagan said in that yes. summit. Yeah, and I think that I think that's you know that's uh, pretty much a reasonable premise. Now, supposing, and I I wasn't kidding when I said it was a distress call uh, going out from there. Supposing this was an attempt to trigger a specific result that would draw the attention from outside and bring them in, like sending up a flare. Exactly. Exactly. What is it? You know, what, what's a commonality? And this uh, this will be a first. I mean, uh, for me to be the first one to introduce a Star Trek reference in one of your shows, uh, <laughs> it's got to be unique. But uh, what was it? What was the pivotal point? It was when Cochran got that got his rust bucket of a ship to uh, go up and test the warp drive, and that warp signature, right. that unique anomalous form of energy compared to the normal panoply of energies available in, on Earth, uh, was picked up by a, um, what happened to be – Oh, a, I like know, this Vulcan model. Ship. I like this model. Let me, let me amplify it. Okay. So, hang on, hang on, hang on. Right. So even if it was ravagers that showed up to take over this planet thinking that they would take advantage of a war, it doesn't matter. A whole bunch of spaceships are drawn here. Uh, well, wait, wait, no, no, no. no. Let, let, let's not go down that rabbit hole, which is uh, Fred Saberhaken and his berserkers. Let's follow this yeah, out. I believe they're worried about those, by the way. I believe that's a legitimate thing on the list, that they're worried okay. they might. Uh, and people probably don't have any idea what we're talking about, so we'll do that we'll on a future show. We'll talk about that show. next time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here's an idea. One of the standard models, guys, is that when we banged off two nuclear weapons and a, and a test or two in World War II, at the end of World War II, it rang an alarm bell, and that's why in 1947 a whole bunch of ships showed up, you know, Mount Rainier, uh, Roswell, the whole nine yards, okay? That's, that's an idea. Suppose that this time, given that we're on the edge, according to Biden the other night, which is astonishing that a U.S. president would say in public and allow reporters to quote him that we're basically in the same position as the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago, which, by the way, is very tetrahedral. And remember, somebody loves rituals, tetrahedral numbers, 60 degrees, 60 days, 60 years, whatever. So suppose someone decided to use the NASA test as a way of triggering a hyper- dimensional alarm by Bingo. really hitting Dimorphos with something much bigger than the dark spacecraft, thereby triggering this enormous release of HD torsion field energy, which shows up on somebody's detectors 20 light years away or a thousand light years away. And basically someone has pulled a fire alarm so that people come and show up and prevent us from doing something again, very, very stupid. You mean sending out an SOS? Yes. A, dis- a distress signal. Yeah. yeah. In the language that they would, because uh, we're not supposed to, according to their Richter scale of cultures, mixing our metaphors madly, to be anywhere close to controlling hyperdimensional physics and suddenly something goes off in this system 
and everybody who knows something says, wait a minute, that shouldn't be happening. Let's go see what's wrong. Hey, I'd like to recommend an excellent uh, movie. It's, it's not a movie. It's a documentary. It's called UFOs Over Russia. It was made in 1994 by an Italian filmmaker. And he got the, the this is after the Soviet Union fell, and they were ready to speak. So he got the army general who was in charge of UFOs. He got the KGB agent who was in charge of UFO investigations. And he asked the KGB agent, why is the Soviet government afraid to tell people about UFOs? And he said, the government is afraid to tell people about UFOs because we believe this is the second coming of Christ. And if people realize that we've been denying God for 75 years, they're going to be in a rage. UFOs. Hmm. UFO over Russia. Another thing, a friend of mine said, you know, what if this is the second coming of Christ? <laughs> and the powers that be are so afraid of losing their power that they are going to tell us that this is an evil alien invasion and try to get the world to fight against the second coming. I'm just telling you what they said. Well, remember the Gorbachev-Reagan conversation, which basically said if somebody showed up, and we could demonstrate an alien threat. We would all get together, et cetera, et cetera, and sing Kumbaya and join forces. And that's why I'm saying to Putin, this is your out. Because frankly, yes. it's his only out, and it does so many other things, and he'll go down in history in the big sweep of time as a hero as opposed to the current version of his history being being written. Let me give you another idea. In a can few – Can I quote Reagan's last sentence? Yeah, sure. Ladies and gentlemen, is there not already an alien presence on this planet and that we call war is the key to the whole thing. This war may be fostered. The third party influence that I talked about many times over the last several weeks. Okay, let me give another thought. In three weeks or four weeks, what, we're, what three and a half weeks, I guess, to the end of the month, October 31, by law. The Congress has mandated the release of the first government report on UFOs, UAPs, all domain vehicles, whatever. And it's supposed to contain a huge bunch of goodies literally released on Halloween. Can you say Orson Welles and War of the Worlds, anybody? Oh, boy. What if this was a prelude, the fire alarm, the SOS, the ringing the bell – prior to that event, which will basically lay out that, yeah, there's folks running around and they're probably not our friends. And then someone can point to the DART experiment and say, see, that's what they did. Yeah. Hey, beads, 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 beads on a string, beads on a string. I just got word that both Putin and Zelensky are going to attend the G20 meeting that's coming up. That's, really? Yes. That's, that's fabulous uh, news. Yes, it is. It's that's, a, that's astonishing. Yeah. Live yeah. or video? No, it doesn't matter. In person, but, it doesn't um, matter. Because remember, there, there are people who will not appear on my show because just appearing on my show would taint their reputations. We won't mention any names. So if Zelensky and Putin are agreeing to attend the conference, even if it's virtual, they're still at the same damn conference and they still right. will be able to talk. And the political meta message is what we need to see. 
Yeah. I want to go back to, to March and April when Putin negotiated the grain deal through the intermediary of uh, Erdogan, president of Turkey and the United Nations, and they agreed to let grain start to move out. That was the beginning of a peace negotiation. But the word is that Biden sent uh, Boris Johnson there to tell him, no, you can't make the peace deal because they want to extend this war for whatever reason they want to do. Well, again, without sourcing and verification, this is a nice story or an unnice story. So believe me, the first casualty in any war is the fog of war, incredible lies and disinformation. Yeah. Well, let me just say, finishing up, the Ukrainians are celebrating these little hits that they got. They're being lured into a trap. No one can set a trap better than the Russians the Battle of the Bulge proves what happens when you make a, 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 a Hail Mary and you get surrounded. The Russians are marshalling their forces, and this little 30-mile, uh, excuse me, 18-mile incursion in the region of, of uh, uh, Kharkiv and, and Kherson is, is not going to work out. They can't face up the 300,000. Who's incursion? Who's incursion? Who's the, you, well, the, incursion the incursion of the Ukrainians into Russian territory. You mean, is, wait, 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 you mean, you mean back into Ukraine territory? Ukraine territory. Start that again. Yeah, well, yeah, you can't just... Ukraine can't got invaded by Putin. Hell, I, I have new news. I have, I have new news. Keith has okay. done it again. He has posted Andrew's item number six. It is so evocative, Andrew, Everybody go to Andrew's items number six. That sounds like a closer. This is, well, I'm getting there. It's kind of like what I think we intended to do with uh, Didymos and Dimorphos and something untoward intervened. And there are two ways you can say it was a bad thing. It's a, it's a, a confrontational thing or it's an enlightening thing and a hyperdimensional thing. And we won't be able to sort out which is of any of these scenarios is true unless we get more data. So everybody go back to my item number and I need to go and look. I don't have it in front of me. I will momentarily go up and look at my item number six because next Tuesday more afternoon, two o'clock, it's noon for me, uh, NASA is going to hold a press conference. And they're going to release a whole bunch of new imagery, including from the from the Italians. And they may actually begin the process of telling us the truth. One can only hope, as my grandmother used to say, from my lips to God's ear. We're listening. <laughs> I said Why it. You dropped the mic. Oh, that was it. That was the mic drop. That was it. Okay. Yep. Hey, guys, I want to thank everyone. We're at the uh, absolute end of the show. This has ended on an important note, Robert. The idea that they're both showing up, however they show up, is incredibly positive. This is the first bright news I've seen on this in days. Let's pray that they actually talk to each other. And maybe because they've been talking behind the scenes, they're all looking at what happened at Didymos and they think that maybe the Gorbachev-Reagan conversation is coming true for real. So until next Saturday and Sunday, on the other side of midnight, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. See you tomorrow night. We'll talk about ancient history 
in Utah that connects to all this. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.